My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. River, the unassuming hermit cave, the unlikely Bodhi tree under which Kurt reached Nirvana, a flea on Seattle's underbelly, Cobain lifted the veil and died by comparison. He found love and love found its muse. Courtney's helter-skelter ring around Kurt's picky fingers. A plaid and denim-clad Orpheus dragged by his Eurydician beguiler into rock and roll's underworld leaving grunge there with it, setting the insecure stages for MTV's boy band indoctrination, jostling and dividing the youth in unprecedented vanity, preparing the nest for the self-important Wokians. Today's guest, Chris Graves of Get Mad with Chris Graves, joins me here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss Kurt Cobain's death and the conspiracy surrounding him and Courtney Love's relationship. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and enjoy this episode with Chris Graves. I drank perfume by Patrick Suskin about 10 times in my life. And, uh, I can't stop reading it. It's like something that's just stationary in my pocket all the time. It just doesn't leave me. And every time I'm bored, like I'm on an airplane or something, I read it over and over again. Because I'm a hypochondriac and it just affects me. It makes me want to cut my nose off. What's it about? It's about this um, perfume apprentice in, in um, France at the turn of the century. And he, um, he uh, is disgusted basically with all humans and he just can't get away from humans. So he goes on this trek this uh, walk of death where he just, he goes into the rural areas where there's, you know, woods all over the place and the small villages and, and he only travels by night and um, he, he just, every time he smells human, like a fire from a far off way, you know, he'll, um, he'll just get really disgusted and hide and he just tries to stay away from people. I can relate to that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. Today on the show, making his first appearance is... The researcher, Chris Graves. You can find him at Get Mad with Chris Graves. You can also find him on the show, uh, amongst others. It's called New Prisoners, and all of that is available for my Rockfin supporters if you go to the America Unplugged channel on Rockfin. But more about that later on. Of course, Chris's links are in the description, so go and check that out as well. 
Chris Graves, welcome to the show, brother. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, we've talked a little bit before we got started, and I'm excited. You are someone who clearly knows a lot. Um, you're a quintessential researcher, and I'm really excited to speak with you because, you know, already in our first five minutes of knowing each other, you've mentioned two big conspiracy theories that I think we both can agree are very impactful and have made big changes on our American culture. So we're going to be talking about Kurt Cobain today. Uh, you also said you've done research into Columbine, so maybe we'll bring that up towards the end. But uh, before we get to all that, tell the listeners about yourself and how you got interested in this type of research, because this is a My Family's my family thinks I'm crazy podcast. We like to know a little bit of background story. And, you know, if your family thought you were crazy too for getting into this stuff. Oh, yeah. My family thought, <laughs> my family thought I was uh, crazy the moment I was hatched way back in the early 80s. So, um, <laughs> I just, by the way, just wanted to say when I first heard the name of your podcast, it, it made me chuckle for a, a long time, kind of in the same way that my, my other buddy, uh, Adam, that does Deborah gets red pill. Right, right. When I first heard that name. I was like, that's great. Like it's kind of the same reaction. So right. it's an honor to be here with you. Thank you. And I love talking about the, the Cobain case, uh, anytime anyone's interested. And, uh, I got into conspiracy stuff for lack of a better term. It's basically just uh, crimes, uh, corruption, in my opinion, because the term conspiracy theory was actually a creation by the CIA in 1967. For anyone that was doubting the uh, Warren Commission uh, about Lee Harvey Oswald being the, you know, the lone nut that killed JFK, it was a way to disparage uh, people that were questioning authority, questioning the official story, and they sent that out to um, their assets, for lack of a better uh, term, in the media, kind of like the COINTELPRO uh, program that the FBI utilized to infiltrate the media and get, you know, get their message out. Anyway, I, I, I got OCD pretty bad, so I'm going to try to narrow it back. No, I love the digression. That's well said on a show like this. People should understand that conspiracy theory and the term has been weaponized. And I think we've effectively got it back <laughs> to some degree because we now did, people. But then it got replaced with things like truther mm. because truther <laughs> to want to get to the truth. All of a sudden in 2001 or 2002 became a bad thing. Right. You're a truther. It's like, yeah, I want to get the truth. Like, hey, it's just preposterous. <laughs> like the hoaxer thing with the, you know, Sandy Hook stuff, same about Bertha or whatever. You're just questioning the official narrative. Right. They have all these buzzwords to, like you said, that they weaponize to cut you down before you even start. So, mm. yeah. It's all by design. It's all engineered to uh, right. make us uh, feel small and not want to open our mouths, kind of like the UFO phenomenon. The longest time before 2021, now, you know, the Pentagon is like, yeah, there's UFOs. Here's all the videos we have. Prior to that, if you admitted that you ever saw a UFO, you were a, you were a nut. You were, a, <laughs> you know what I mean? You were a loon. Yeah. They did that on purpose, too, to keep you... Uh, your mouth shut so you don't talk you know to your neighbors or your family uh, out of fear of ridicule or losing your job or whatever anyway that's another tangent but 
conspiracies have always fascinated me, kind of like urban legends too, um, because there's mystery behind them. Unfortunately, a lot of the time there's people that get hurt or murdered. So that's not, you know, fun. When I say fun, it's just the idea of that there could be another explanation behind Mm -hmm. an event and, or like a crime or something like that. Like the Kurt Cobain uh, death, you know, uh, that was one of the earliest ones that I started to uh, look into. And you were it, interested it, in this type of music, right? I mean, this this was probably that was a, big... a separate thing. When I was in junior high and high school, uh, up until that point, I was used to going in the car with my my parents and listening to oldies mm. and like the Beatles and you know all the stuff from the seventies, which later on I had an appreciation for because. I basically had the uh, old school rock and roll like education. But then when I was really pissed off and really angry as a teenager, I got into Metallica. I got into Alice in Chains and Nirvana big time, specifically uh, Nirvana, you know, because I wasn't an emo kid, but, you know, I was sensitive and stuff. And when I saw Kurt and, you know, read up on him and everything, it was an attraction. He was, he was speaking my language, uh, for lack of a better term. And the music, just his voice, like Lane Staley from Alice in Chains. It does something to me, like a drug almost. It just, it, it, to this day, if I listen to uh, the song Wood by Alice in Chains or Nutshell or Smells Like Teen Spirit, I know it's a cliche because it's like a big hit, but a heart-shaped box, whatever it is, I still have like the hairs on my, my arms like stand up. Yeah. I still feel like that young man, you know, back in the 90s. So I loved the grunge movement, even though the grunge uh, musicians didn't actually like being called grunge because that was a media creation. Mm. They were just rock and roll. They just happened to be up in Seattle where they were wearing flannel because it was cold out. And then all of a sudden it became like a fashion statement. Right. Like literally. Next thing so, you know, you have models on the runway wearing flannel with I, uh, painted on shit stains and, you know. Yeah, and then you got the <laughs> jeans that are like pre-ripped. Yeah. And then the people that were wearing the jeans literally until they were shredded, they were wearing them because that's the only pair they have. Right. They're laughing. They're laughing all the way. You know, these idiots are like, oh, it's a fashion statement. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it very much liked that era. But like the thrash metal of the 80s, the original Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, then later Pantera. I also had a love for the grunge scene, you know, and STP, I'd actually replace Pearl Jam. I'd put STP in there if I could, because I liked them a lot better than Pearl Jam. But anyway, that, that is neither here nor there, but the whole me being into conspiracies, UFOs, and then Kurt Cobain's death, because there were questions. And then a little bit later after that, it was the Columbine massacre in 1999, just because I was of that age. And there's a lot of stuff that the public still doesn't know. I actually went into the 11,000 pages of uh, witness statements and police reports. That is like a mini, a mini 911, like, or a warrant commission, not a warrant commission, but like it, it was a cover up. I'll just put it that way. Mm. So the biggest one was 911, September 11, 2001. I pretty much, studied from the day on when they were talking about explosions going off in the, in the basements of the towers. And then after the first day, 
you never heard about explosions ever again for like a year and a half mm -hmm. until things like loose change came out or whatever. And it reminded me, I'm like, oh yeah, whatever happened? Because I thought that that was going to be a part of the official narrative. Only I thought they were going to say the hijacker somehow had access to the buildings to wire them up. No, that didn't happen. The explosions and everything that were mentioned over and over again that first day, it went down the memory hole, which really put my antenna up when I really thought about it like a year later. I'm like, why did that? Those reports just get wiped away. I thought we were going to find out how they had access to the buildings. So I, 9-11 made me a real researcher. Like I had read Who Killed Kirk Cobain in 1998. I went to Tom Grant, PI that Courtney hired. I went to his website. I saw the Unsolved Mysteries episode about the case. But 9-11 made me like, look at everything you know oh, right. um, pretty, Activated. pretty much from the day forward and i've been questioning ever since and uh now i feel like what i do now i don't make any money for any of this i feel like it's my small like a my small way of a public service of some sort to wake people up That's because beautiful. if anything it's a detriment to me personally like if you get big enough in this research community that's when people get killed or they have accidents, stuff like that. So I always kind of wanted to not have my name out there, but after a while, I was like, you know, you know, what am I hiding from? And then the lockdown happened. Well, then I really went full force with author Donald Jeffries, sending him research for his pandemic book. Uh, he had a book. My The first book that I'm credited with helping is, uh, is the last one on borrowed fame. It's all about, Stuff like Kirk Cobain, like musicians and actors, and Hollywood, the Hollywood crush, not so much the political stuff, because his first book, Hidden History, covered stuff like JFK and 9-11, JFK Jr. That's another subject that I really delve, dove into, TWA 800. I looked into that because there was a phenomenon where thousands of people said they saw videos of missiles hitting that plane that first night. And then never again. So I've been trying to find one of those videos to this day. I hope I don't find it because it could be dangerous, you know, even to this day. You know, uh, the powers that be, they memory all this stuff for a reason. But there's a part of me that just wants to keep searching like that. The stuff that we're not supposed to see that was shown once or twice. It's like the mystery. It's like, a you know, like with Columbine, there was footage of a NATO truck parked out front of this yeah nato truck blue nato truck with the their symbol the shield and everything on the front at the very beginning of the massacre from a helicopter i've seen stills from that footage i've talked to people that actually saw the footage live that footage disappeared and never seen again like the missile videos of twa 800 so stuff like that like i tune into like what was shown once or twice and that we're not supposed to, that supposedly never happened though you know, mm. well and they expect us they expect us to forget you know they expect us to yeah. be so conditioned by their humdrum routine mundanity yeah. of our society that we're not going to look at something for more than a day because the next day we're on to the next whatever uh well, that's like it is now but what happens with these things, I studied these events like Oklahoma City too. The initial reports, 
the mainstream media likes to uh, repeat this over and over again, and it's not true. They say that the initial reports of any kind of tragedy or, uh, you know, an event, those initial reports are always totally wrong and false, right? When in actuality, they say like the reporters and stuff, they'll say this over and over again. They say you can't trust the eyewitness testimony and stuff too. It's like the false memory syndrome people like with, uh, you know, the big marketing mm-hmm. preschool molestation right. case. They turn them, the victims into even more victims saying they're lying and making stuff right. up. When you find out that false memory syndrome wasn't a real syndrome to begin with, it was actually, it was actually run by pedophiles. Right. And they got shut down quietly a few years ago, finally. But they were there to discredit actual rape and molested, you know, molested, people that were molested or victims. Anyway, that ties into like Columbine stuff. I have a friend that saw an adult shooter there. She was labeled as having false memory syndrome and all this stuff. And she had like 15 other people that backed her up what she saw. But she was the only one that didn't change her uh, story under uh after the cops were uh you know using intimidation tactics to make her change her story of what she saw wow. they bugged her phone and everything that's columbine but anyway i don't even i'm on all these tangents, no it's but, all right it's all right but then they say that's what it is but in actuality your chance of getting the real the closest to the real story is actually those initial reports because mm. then they disappear but they like to say that no and they will be off uh, the initial reports, they're usually you know, like 90% wrong. And like, we don't look at them again because it's, you know, it's false reporting or people got it wrong or whatever. No, they usually, when if there's a shooting where uh, there's three shooters, a lot of the time, these three shootings, there's usually like two or three shooters. And then it gets whittled down to the one lone nut. The patsy. You know? Yeah. But those there's witnesses that usually see other participants that just either get arrested or they're they're able to slip away. Sandy Hook, a lot of people think it's a hoax, right? I don't think it's a hoax, but I think it's a different kind of false flag using like Twilight Zone type stuff to lure conspiracy people in into a trap, like having the you know parents laughing at press conferences and doing stuff that is not natural. Mm. I think that stuff was put out there on purpose. And I think right. with the Sandy Hook uh, defamation trial with Alex Jones, I think he's a participant in all that stuff. I think he's uh, like Trump. I'm, I'm just giving it to you straight. I think these people are uh, are puppets. They're actors. I don't think they're the real deal. They're used for certain things. January 6th was, which I'm working on a documentary with, uh, a couple of people from the new prisoners podcast, right? Um, it was like a loose change version, but for January 6th, because there's a lot of people that are in jail that actually are on film, not doing anything, mm. but they're, they're still in jail to this day without right. trials. And then agent provocateur types or undercover people that were actually being violent. They were like, no, <laughs> but the innocent people that was set up in my opinion, to make you be afraid to protest your your rights. Sandy Hook trial with Alex Jones, I think that was a culmination from 2012, a trap for researchers in a way. I do think 
people died though. I'm not saying that because they want you to, they put the hoax thing out there on purpose. And right? when you, you say that, then of course it's like, oh, you're, you're, you're saying these parents are lying. That's on purpose. Right. They always go with the children because that's what, pull, you know, tugs on your heartstrings. But here's the thing that, that last trial with Alex Jones, the one where now he, he owes like $2 trillion. Like, what is that about? Crazy. You know, that's, it's ridiculous. And here's the thing. The Sandy Hook thing was, in my opinion, like the January 6th fiasco. That was meant to uh, make you be afraid to protest in your rights. You're supposed to be able to protest. Not violently, but you're supposed to be able to assemble and protest. Now, yeah. no one wants to... The, after January 6th, I'm going to sit and rot in jail for a year and they're going to throw away the key and I don't get a trial. My family doesn't get to see me. That's all on purpose. They're making examples. But anyway, the Sandy Hook thing was another uh, way of taking your rights away. It's to basically tell all us researchers, you better think twice before you uh, ask questions about certain things because we'll take all your money... Well, make it so that you owe trillions of dollars now. And Alex Jones is used as an example. And the reason why I say that, and I'm pretty confident in it, because the Alex Jones that got everyone, you know, in an uproar, like, oh, he woke me up and all this other stuff. He didn't do anything during that trial. And here's the thing, he could have had it thrown out. You know why? The whole, that trial was all because his, um, one of his, uh, the pe the guys, Owen Troyer, Owen Schroyer, one of his on-air people at the time, asked uh, a reasonable question. He, what he said was, on-air, he goes, why is it that Neil Breslin, this father of, uh, you know, a Sandy Hook uh, child, a victim, why did he go on Megyn Kelly and tell the world that he was holding his dead son in his arms with a bullet hole in his head? How can he make that statement when Wayne Wayne Carver, you know, the goofy uh, coroner that had a press conference the day after Sandy Hook, where he's like laughing, he's doing all these unnatural things, right? He claimed that none of the parents got anywhere near their children, and they were identified to Polaroids. So that basically showed that what Neil Breslin was telling Megan Kelly couldn't have happened. So Alex Jones, if he was the real deal, I'm not a lawyer. That would have dismissed the whole case. Either the coroner was lying or the father's lying. But he didn't do anything. And he just sat there. And then there's footage of him actually joking around with the parents that are suing him. And the mother gives him an aspirin and a bottle of water out. A certain, Dad told me that it's a sham thing. It, it's a, a psychological operation to make researchers afraid to ask questions. Mm. That's our current state. Back in like Columbine, you didn't have parents having press conferences within 24 hours with suits and ties where they're sitting there laughing and then they're getting into character or what it seems like, right? And giving a press conference about how their daughter would have forgiven her killer. You know, that's what happened with Robbie Parker. Hmm. Day after Sandy Hook, everyone grieves differently, right? It's a possibility that maybe that's... It's just so bizarre. Like, why would you have, I look back at Columbine, none of those families wanted to talk to the media at all, let alone hold a press conference. It's just weird stuff about 
it's like the false flag. Like there's an evolution now where with the Boston bombing or like Vegas or the Pizzagate thing, there's these lightning rod things that will cancel you as a human being, you know, lose your job, lost your family. Now they'll take you to court and make it so that you owe trillions of dollars, everything. So our world is really hurting. So going back to Kirk Cobain, um, there were a lot of weird tactics that were used by like Courtney Love, even David Geffen. Later on, I found out he was in the mix because he had a lot to gain too. If he had a rock and roll martyr like he did with John Lennon, because mm. John Lennon's solo career was with David Geffen. A lot of people forget that. I'm not saying he he had anything to do with death, but it gives well and think there is an economic model there that you're sort of describing, especially when you have a star. And wants Who's, to walk away, retire. Well, and you have a star who passes away, right? And whether it's a tragedy or, or a murder an or suicide, or an accident, yeah. the, the record label can now make money off of that You're person. You're a martyr, rock and roll martyr. That yeah. can, they can make money up. Elvis still makes millions and millions. Right. He's been dead since 1977. And they don't have to pay Elvis, but they get all the royalties on that, right? I'm sure there's yeah. a few family members, I mean, but... I mean, I think, uh, yeah, uh, Lisa Marie probably is something still because they have uh, not Wonderland, they have. Uh, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. In Tennessee, I was actually near it. Yeah. The, uh, Graceland, Graceland. Graceland, yes. They have to still pay for that. So, yeah, they're getting right. something. But I'm just saying he's been dead since 1977. Mm. He still makes millions upon millions. He still makes those lists of the most paid like musicians like Kirk Cobain. It has made generated billions of dollars. He's been dead since April fifth, nineteen ninety four. So it's a lot of money to be made if he's dead. But he turned down Lollapalooza ninety four, headlining ten million bucks. That pissed off a lot of people, mm. and a lot of people don't remember this. But in Rolling Stone magazine, the month before his body was found in the greenhouse on his property, it said that Nirvana was disbanded. He broke up the band. A lot of people don't remember that, though. Mm. He was serious. The so-called suicide note, the body of it is a retirement letter to Kurt's fans, basically. He signs his name, Kurt Cobain. Anything that refers to any kind of uh, wanting to leave this, this planet is like four lines at the bottom that are supposed to be to Francis Bean, his daughter, Courtney. And there's one line to his imaginary uh, childhood friend, Botter. And here's the thing. Those five lines, the four at the bottom, and the one at the top to Botter, those are almost certainly in a different handwriting and even traced. Right. Because Courtney Lowe's backpack was at her entertainment manager's house. Rosemary Carroll, the godmother, the original godmother to Francis Bean before... Courtney made Drew Barrymore her godmother after because Rosemary Carroll did a lot of stuff that she probably shouldn't have because she was suspicious because she knew she had claimed on audio that a PI named Tom Grant has to this day on audio cassette. You hear her questioning like Kurt wasn't suicidal. Kurt wanted a divorce, called me and wanted a divorce and wanted Courtney taken out of his will. He just didn't get a chance to sign it yet. And at the same time, Courtney called her as well 
and wanted her to find the most vicious divorce lawyer she could find. So, <laughs> so Rosemary Carroll was uh, privy to like pretty much everything going on behind the scenes. So she shared a lot of information with Tom Grant, the private investigator, because she was suspicious. And she, Rosemary Carroll kind of looked at Kurt and Corny as almost like children, like or kids almost, you know, like taking care. It was more than just a manager or a lawyer situation. So anyway, Rosemary Carroll is key to all this because originally Tom Grant kind of thought it was possible it was a suicide after all. Rosemary Carroll on the audio recordings, she's the one that keeps pushing Tom to look into this or that. And that's what keeps Tom going for a while. So it's just funny that afterwards when at a certain point, Rosemary Carroll can't, is not allowed to talk to Tom anymore. Rosemary Carroll's office sends, uh, sends Tom Grant's uh, a cease and desist, but, you know, from looking into her client anymore. And the irony is that uh, Rosemary Carroll was the one that was pushing Tom to keep looking further and doing mm. think She thought something felt weird, something was wrong. Kurt was not suicidal. Kurt wanted to uh, leave Seattle and wanted to raise his child if anything kurt had talked to his actual friends before courtney and her hanger-ons chased them away had mentioned that he wanted to do like a johnny cash thing where he took like a acoustic guitar and play like little intimate you know camp right. like solo shows right. that's all he wanted to do he was talking about doing a, a special project with michael stipe too which a lot of people think was going to be the next Nirvana album. It was going to be like a white album thing with a lot of string instruments. It was going to kind of show uh, even more, like after the unplugged, how much Kurt really was like a great musician and not just a punk rocker that's screaming and everything, you know. Mm -hmm. And the unplugged actually proved a lot of that. You know, he was able to be a good, you know, musician, songwriter, performer because it showed a different side, you know, yeah. to the melodies and everything. But anyway, um, yeah, I started going back into the Kurt thing. Um, no, I think what right now would be a good time to kind of give the audience who might not have all of these oh, names, yeah. you know, because it's been a, it's been a while. I mean, I was born the year Kurt passed, so you know, a lot oh, of this. Okay, yeah. yeah, a lot of this stuff is way ahead of me. But I was, you know, as a young man, definitely listening to Nirvana. Still to this day, I'll listen to Nirvana here and there, and I agree with that feeling you described especially heart-shaped box and you yeah. know some of these other jams that they have they really pull and tug on a, a, apologies yeah, yeah and it, it's you know it's it's his voice was very authentic and i think that's yeah. something that the record companies they try to take advantage of because they can't recreate that they have to find those people and they have to bastardize per, you know whore them out you know so Let's let's give the audience a little background. Courtney Love and her husband Kurt Cobain, they were not getting along. They were uh, you know, sort of fighting, but Courtney has a very strange past. She's not the normal scene chick who just gets involved with rock stars trying to be a groupie. She has some ties to military intelligence, right? I mean, her father uh was come to, come to find out there were documents that were released for the last few years that mm. I that I had no idea existed. And that's why people like John Potash wrote his book, because he was able to actually use that those angles that 
the earlier books like Who Killed Kirk Cobain by Ian Halpern and Max Wallace, and then their sequel book, Love and Death, The Murder of Kirk Cobain. They weren't privy to this new stuff. This mm. was like this is like declassified things. Well, there wasn't a very short FBI investigation into it being a possible murder, but it was closed pretty pretty fast in 1994. But there was some kind of uh, FBI activity around that. Right. Here's the thing: the latest one uh, points to the fact that Hank Harrison, right? was Courtney Love's father. He just passed away, actually. My producer, Chuck O'Jelly, um, actually started to have kind of a relationship after interviewing Hank on his show, like, last year. And Hank kept saying he wanted to get a hold of Chuck, but then he died. So when Chuck told me that, it was like this weird, mysterious, like, thing. Like, what did Hank want to tell Chuck? And now Hank's dead. Not saying it was connected to Kurt's death or whatever, but it was just curious because Hank was a curious individual. He was the original uh, manager for the Grateful Dead, and they fired him because he, in my opinion, uh, just based on different interviews over the years, he was kind of a scumbag, for lack of a better term. He was always trying to make money. He even wrote a book without even meeting Kurt when Courtney was married to him. Hank wrote a book called uh, The Murder of Kurt Cobain and, you know, to kind of capitalize. And, he was, you know, he's always complaining about how he should be paid for this and that or whatever. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, I felt like, with Courtney. It's like, you kind of see where Courtney gets some of this stuff. And apparently, according to Courtney and Courtney's mother, Hank actually gave Courtney uh, LSD at age two. So that'll mess with uh, a child, you know? Get, um, believe me, I loathe Courtney Love, so I'm not giving her sympathy. But I can understand where the train went off the rails at a certain point. Anyway, so Hank Harrison was Courtney Love's father because her name was uh, Courtney Michelle Harrison. Love was not her real last name. Um, so basically, uh, Hank had a friend that Come to find out, this friend on his deathbed admitted that he was uh, in the CIA and that he admitted to Hank that he actually gave Courtney, back in the 80s, he gave Courtney uh, thousands of tabs of LSD to pass out to the various music scenes in England, Ireland, all over Europe, and then back in the States. Kind of like what Yoko Ono people say was doing at a certain point too. Right. So it's kind of a weird, weird thing because if I don't know if you remember uh, with John Lennon, John Lennon was with a woman named May Pang in his Lost Weekend, which was actually like a two-year relationship where he left Yoko for two years and was dating May Pang, right? Who was great for for uh, John, in my opinion. I talked to May Pang; she's still still kicking. She actually saw the UFO uh, with John. Mm. Uh, there's a famous story that yeah. they saw a saucer in, in New York City in 1974. In Brooklyn, he wrote yeah. The liar notes. Anyway, it, it was with May Pang that this event happened. Wow. But Yoko comes back. The only reason I'm bringing this up is a correlation with how Courtney trapped Kurt. Well. She got pregnant very fast after they started dating. And he, him being uh, a child of divorce, he felt like the right thing to do was to marry her so that his child would not be in a similar situation. So she totally played him. 
and then they got married very soon after. So there wasn't really a, a chance for a love to blossom or whatever. It was opportunistic there. Then she got she got Kurt hooked on heroin as well, by the way. Mm-hmm. He was not a junkie before meeting Corny. Yoko, the reason why I bring up Yoko, Yoko comes uh, to Bay Pang in John's apartment one day, basically <laughs> drags John off for like a weekend, literally just a weekend, how long weekend. She gets pregnant with Sean. And now all of a sudden, John's on heroin. <laughs> Goodbye, Nate Penn. And John, you know, we know what happens to John five years later or whatever, in 1980. And that's a whole story, too. Anyway, Kirk Cobain, like I just said, Courtney's been eyeing this guy, this kid, for a, a little while. And then he's getting some traction. He's got just got signed to, uh, you know, from, uh, he just got signed to Geffen. So now she's like, oh, wow. But here's the thing. She thought she was going to be more famous and successful than Kurt, right? So when they got married, she actually had a, um, uh, you have to forgive me. When you sign a, a thing. Affidavit? No, no. When you sign something before you get married. Oh, prenup. A prenup. She had Kurt sign a prenup saying that if they got divorced, uh, he couldn't touch her money, right? Mm. When in actuality, Nirvana blew up. <laughs> right. The only reason Hole had a successful album was because the, the album came out a week after Kurt was found dead, and the album's called Live Through This. What? And she immediately went on tour, The Grieving Widow. Right, and for people who don't know, Hole is Courtney Love's band. And, band, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and wow, that's incredible. So, Live she, this, she's the title. She, she released that after. Wow, that's a week after. I mean, if that doesn't tell you something, so if they got divorced, right? They yeah. got divorced. She would have been forgotten. Right. She became a superstar after she became an actress. She was in Man on the Moon with Jim Carrey. She was in People versus Larry Flint with. Woody Harrelson, she became an actress and she was all glamorous and everything. But before that, she was Miss Groupie, which I feel like a part of it was an act for the most part, because then she, you know, she's on audio tape saying, oh, oh yeah, if I just go out and tell like the, the press, like, oh, they'll believe me because they think I'm all kooky and stuff. She admits to being a BS artist. Mm. Like, I think when she's all strung out, like an interview, she's doing that on purpose so that it's like an alibi later on, which she actually used a lot when she was going to Howard Stern and when she was fighting with Dave and Chris over the Nirvana lights in like 2002 or whatever. I think a lot of that was an act. I really think she, I'll give her credit. She's very smart individual and usually psychopaths that become successful. They cut a lot of corners. They tear people down. Like people like Trump, like business people, they get there for a reason. Well, people like you and me, we mean well. We don't hurt anybody. But I don't know about you. I'm not living a life of life, you know, lap luxury, whatever. That's fine. But people that have an agenda that you know, usually, if you look into stuff like psychopaths, sociopaths, they tend to be successful people, like business people, and it's because that they just. Uh, you know, they don't have a conscience most of the time. Well, the system, uh, you know, incentivizes that cut through yeah. approach. And to a certain extent, yeah, that is how you have to play ball. But it seems like Courtney was 
as you described, kind of built for this role, her father being a, a shady, scummy manager. Of grateful this, Dead. And, yeah, and, and, and the Grateful Dead. Dead, yeah, of course. I mean, I'm not personally a fan of any jam bands. I'm not either. I think yeah. the festival culture is kind of suspect. I don't know if you've ever fish, been, but work. there's yeah. like a, a very dark kind of scene of drug use uh, that yeah. surrounds that music. and Usually in the park. Right, yeah. right. And it's, you know, it's pretty depressing to to think that this is the byproduct of this, what we think of as revolution of love and free thought, right? Like, yeah. and it, it feels, yeah, it feels like that was a controlled crash to some degree, right? Like the, the American social engineers did not want the children uh, of that generation to go out and reform america in their image they they had to get ahead of that and they use drugs to do so no you're a smart guy right i know you you're, you're i think you're referring to uh, john potash's book right mm. i'll give you one better right john potash good good author and everything i actually had a debate with him a lot on the phone why when i called into donald jeffrey's show mm. on protest because i actually talked to uh the guy who actually pulled the trigger killed kurt that is not the same guy that John names as Kurt's killer in that book. Mm. So well, the guy that he that. names uh, El Duce, mm -hmm. the guy who gets hit by a train, said he claims on camera in the documentary Kurt Courtney that Courtney offered fifty thousand dollars to uh, blow his head off, or whatever. And he passed the polygraph. This guy El Duce was his stage name. He was in a band called the Mentors, a rape rock band. It was like a shock rock thing. It was disgusting. It was like, you know, it was a gimmick or whatever. Um, he passed the polygraph, right? It and it was pretty convincing or whatever. But in that same interview, um, because he actually gets hit by a train like a week later after divulging this on camera for Nick Bloomfield's movie, Current Courtney, and he lets uh, he lets a name slip, uh, Alan. He goes, I, well, I know who actually did it. It wasn't me, but I know who actually did accept the 50 grand. I'll let the FBI catch Alan. And then this whole thing about a guy named Alan Ranch, who actually was friends with Eldon Hoke, El Duce. Eldon Hoke was his real name. He actually was uh, friends with him. He was a punk rock guy um, named uh, Alan Ranch. I think it was a stage name. Because after Kurt died, uh, he, this Alan Wrench guy, kind of seized the moment, right? Um, he started a band called Kill Alan Wrench, and at his shows, he would uh, not come out and, and say that he was Kurt Cobain's, like, killer, but he would always uh, kind of, like, infer it or whatever. It's like, oh, yeah, you know? But the evidence doesn't support the fact that this guy, like he, this guy did come into some money, which was kind of curious. Like, mm. did he get 50 grand from Courtney, a brand pickup truck and recording equipment for his band? So it was curious, but the guy who actually pulled the trigger and she basically admits this in the movie Soaked and Bleach that came out a couple of years ago on one of Tom Grant's audio tapes was a guy named uh, Michael Callie DeWitt who was Francis Bean's nanny at the time, and also Courtney's uh, ex-boyfriend. And he was a current junkie. He was the only one that was in the house besides his girlfriend, Jessica Hopper, who became uh, 
pretty big in the music uh, journalist uh, industry. I'll get to her in a second. She was in the house too. And so was Macaulay Culkin's older sister, who ended up uh, dying a few years after that. I'm not saying it's connected, but um, she was in there too. Macaulay Culkin connection, Kurt Cobain's mm-hmm. death. But anyway, so Callie was his nickname. He was the only one that was with Kurt at certain points during the time he was so-called missing. The whole reason Courtney uh, hired Tom Grant, the private investigator, was the claim that Kurt uh, jumped the fence at a rehab called Exodus in Los Angeles, took a flight back to Seattle, right? She, uh, there was, uh, Tom Grant had phone records from the Peninsula uh, Hotel where Courtney was staying during that because she couldn't, she couldn't be in Seattle. She wanted to have an alibi. She didn't even want to be in the same state when Kurt's body was found later on. She also came up with this whole thing how uh, it was a suicide pact. Oh, one of us is going to die first. She pretended to uh, overdose and had the cops come. And then they were going to arrest her, right? And then they found out that she didn't have anything in her system and it wasn't heroin in the room. So she wanted that for the press to pick up. Oh, the suicide pact, you know, so it would be even less a suspect, you know? Oh, he's going to kill him. So I know I might as well do it first. Because that's the image you want your child to, you know, have later on in life when they look back on you. She's real sick stuff, man. Yeah. She even like glorified. She she had a Francis Bean's Sweet Sixteen party. You know what the theme was? I'm not making this up. Suicide theme. Francis Bean and her friends. They were dressed like, uh, you know, corpses that were had uh, committed suicide. Those are articles. You can find them anywhere. Um, wow. Real sick stuff. What I'm saying is uh, there's so many different aspects of this thing. She knew that Kurt, uh, where Kurt was the whole time because the phone records that Tom was able to get from her room said that Kurt, uh, Kurt before he, uh, after he left the rehab, right, and he didn't jump the uh, wall like the media said. He walked out the front door because it wasn't a, a lockdown kind of rehab. He went there, you know, uh, on his own um you know, free will or whatever. He wasn't uh, supposed to be there for some court thing or whatever. Mm. He was actually off of heroin for like six months because he finally was able to get the pinched nerve in his stomach. He was able to get uh, a doctor to finally diagnose it properly and give him medication. So he wasn't on heroin. That plays a part into the heroin, heroin levels that were in his body when he died because he was not an active heroin user at the time. So it makes it even more potent when they say he had three times the lethal that, dose of heroin in his system. That is something I do remember, that he was not particularly swayed by the drug itself or the culture. He was a pain. It was a pain. It was a pain that he had dealt with for a long time and probably yeah. didn't know what to do other than that. And this Doctors woman... couldn't. They Doctors had a lot of guesses. Mm. They couldn't actually prescribe anything yet. So he was like in pain. So when people look back, when Courtney like repeats stuff that Kurt said at the beginning of their relationship, but oh, I mean, so like, oh, I just want to die. She would not say what context that was in. Right. She wouldn't say, oh, he's in physical pain. She would just tell reporters, oh, he's going to kill himself. She would leave suicide trails uh, in the media years before his body. And a lot of these things, you look at like cold cases and like, Stage suicides, or actually murders of 
non-famous people, if you look into those cases, a lot of the time the spouse will uh, have some kind of suicide trail with either family members, you know, like get it, like plant the seeds, like in people's minds. So when the body is actually found, it's not going to be a shock. You'll be, oh yeah, he was going to show up anyway, because right. you planted those seeds a long time ago right. and you were full of crap. You know, uh, so Kurt didn't know that she was doing this all this time. So anyway, um, Kurt was trying to get his act together, you know, got off the heroin like in the fall of 93 because his doctor uh, was able to prescribe medication for the pinched nerve in the stomach. So that a lot of people don't even know that. So, uh, so anyway, this is, this so many, it's, even if you're not a Nirvana fan, you're not a music fan. It is a compelling cold case. Mm. I mean, officially, it was labeled a suicide within a half an hour <laughs> of his body being killed. Right. That is unnatural. It should have been labeled undetermined. Right. That's what Tom Green always wanted because then it left it left the opportunity for other, you know people that weren't Seattle Police Department because they had a lot to lose uh, because they could have been sued for negligence because. What a lot of people also don't know is that worldwide, at the time, in the late 90s, there were over 100 copycat suicides of Kurt and Nirvana fans that thought that's how their hero went out. Yeah. They killed themselves. But a lot of people wrote after Tom Grant started getting his story out into the press, a lot of kids and teenagers later on would write to Tom thanking him because they were thinking about killing themselves too. But when they came across Tom's website, Cobain case, that put in their mind that maybe he was murdered and that that's not the way that he chose to go out. Right. But those other hundred, and it has to be more now. That was the late nineties. Copycat suicide, all those families that came out, uh, how sloppy and actually people were paid and friends with Courtney in the department, including the, uh, Sergeant Cameron, who was in charge of the investigation, um, she was friends with him. The coroner had did Kurt's autopsy. Nicholas Hawthorne was a whole, uh, was um, a roadie for holes. The friends with Courtney in the 80s, in the clubs. Conflict of interest? You know what I mean? You, right. <laughs> I can't make this stuff up. And then he dies in a weird bungee jumping accident, like the year 2000. Mm. He was friends. The guy who labeled it, you know, the coroner, good friends with Courtney Love. So she had all that ties into, you know, later on when we find out she had CIA connections like LSD and all this other stuff. It makes sense now that she actually did have contacts, not only in law enforcement, but like, you intelligence agencies and things like that. You know what I mean? Right. So it makes sense even more now. Um, right. And there was a cop named Detective Antonio Terry that she would use to bust people that um, got on her bad side, like planting drugs. He was a narcotics uh, officer. He's actually on the missing, uh, Kurt's missing uh, persons report that Courtney filed pretending to be uh, Wendy O'Connor, Kurt's mother, which is illegal. She mm. pretended to be Kurt's mother, so it wasn't so obvious. It wasn't Courtney. It was Wendy, right? That's illegal. So Detective Antonio Terry is listed for further information at the bottom of it. And 
he was like, uh, he was working for Courtney, uh, under the table, whatever it is. He ends up getting executed, uh, two months after Kurt. And he was actually looking into the source of the heroin that was in Kurt's system at the time. And he was like the first, uh, gangland style execution of a police officer in the Seattle police department in like 20 years at the time, he's 1994. A lot of people died that people don't realize, like Christian Pfaff, who was Hole's bassist. She, Courtney, supposedly thought that maybe her and Kurt were having like a, a thing on the side, right? Meanwhile, Courtney was uh, messing around with Billy Corgan, uh, the guy from uh, Evan Dando. Uh, she was messing around with Trent Reznor, like all these people. But, oh no, if Kurt was uh, messing around with this beautiful girl, Christian Pfaff, there's no, you know, that hasn't been proven, but if Courtney had that suspicion, uh, it's not surprising that, you know, the way Christian was killed, you know, she died trying to leave Seattle, leave Hole. She had her, um, she had the van all packed and ready to go and leave Seattle the next morning. Well, Eric, um, Hole's guitarist, Eric Erlitson, um, he went and visited Kristen at the motel. And a lot of people think that because she wasn't on heroin anymore either, right? Like Kurt. Well, she was injected. She was a town in the bathtub, overdosed um, with a lot of heroin. And the cops didn't even bother like they did with uh, Kurt. Uh, they didn't even bother checking the levels and stuff. They just labeled it an overdose. And Kristen's mother, she tried getting it reopened. They said, ah, forget it, you know. But a lot of people think that Kristen was murdered too. And that Courtney was there with Eric in the room. So a lot of corpses. And like I said, Macaulay Culkin's half-sister, Jennifer Adamson, she was in the house uh, with Callie. And I confronted Callie in Beverly Hills like 10 years ago because he had enough money to open up an art gallery in Beverly Hills. And uh, hmm. let's just say he didn't act like I, what the stuff I was saying to him. Because yeah, I pissed off. Because, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say hero stuff. You know, I don't think he should really put people on, you know, human beings on certain pedestals. But I admired Kurt. I felt like he had a lot to give and he didn't deserve what happened to him, you know, at all. So I was a little pissed off. And, you know, I was obviously 10 years younger, you know. So I said, I got to lose, you know, I'm just uh, going to confront this guy and not be violent with him. And he just had a big smirk on his face. And it's like, yeah, you try to prove it. Because all these books and these documentaries that come out, nothing has happened, you know. Courtney apparently has a lot of pull in intelligence agencies. Even. We didn't find that out in the last couple of years. But she had a lot of pull with, like, the local PD, Seattle and everything, with coroners, the mm -hmm. homicide detectives. She got people beaten up by a, a cops off duty, all kinds of stuff. And it's like, she, supposedly she was just a groupie that was, uh, you know, trying to, you know, marry uh, who, who she thought was going to be the next big thing. Even in the 80s, she was married. Her first husband is in the documentary, uh, Kurt and Courtney, right? He's basically in tears because he, may, I believe he made the claim that when she realized that he wasn't going to become like the next big rock star or whatever, she was pregnant at the time. And she actually like aborted his child, like on purpose to 
like one last FU to him because she apparently would hire people, big guys to beat him up if he didn't do whatever she said. So imagine what Kurt was in for. Kurt was like a, a little guy, you know? So most of the time, Kurt would just go on and get along, and he wasn't hooked on heroin until she introduced him to it. You know, he would take care of that pinched nerve thing with a little bit of alcohol, but even that would upset his stomach if they would touch. He would have some marijuana and stuff like that, you know? Not the hard stuff. That was Courtney Love later on. And she gets pregnant like Yoko did, traps him, basically, makes... He preys upon his childhood where it was devastating. It was a product of uh, divorce. He didn't want to repeat the cycle again. So they, uh, she got her hooks into him, and then he becomes what he becomes. He's a cash cow for everybody. So when people, you know, or they start uh, getting the hint that he, he wants out now because now he's got vipers around him and his real friends shoot away, you know, he wants out, right? And they're not going to let him go because he's a cash cow. If he disbands Nirvana, which was in Rolling Stone magazine, he retires or becomes a solo artist, that's not going to make a lot of money. And right now, Nevermind was like the biggest album, pushed Michael Jackson off the charts, you know, all that stuff. There's a lot of money to be, it's always money, dude. Or, you know, later on, you find out like John Potes makes the, the case that. Kurt's leftist views could have played a part in his demise. Like, his, he could have been like with John, or like a lot of people think John Lennon was going to get back into politics now that, you know, now that he was uh, back doing music again and that he would have been a threat to the Reagan administration, well, think, things like that. I think that. I don't think that was a part of it. I think most of it was money because yeah. Kurt didn't really make waves when it came to politics. Yeah, he did charity stuff, but. Well, and I agree. I agree with you on that note because although there there was that political aspect to some of the earlier music scenes, maybe the sixties or seventies, that had yeah. really faded out with the nineties music scene. They they were not. It was more of a cultural response to society being kind yeah. of an oppression, and we we don't give up. You know, it was it was like punk, but with a more of a cynical. Uh, you when know. you brought up something cool earlier, then, mm. actually, I meant to tell you about that when you were talking about how the social engineers, like mm. with the hippie movement mm. and the CIA basically putting out LSD to make the peace of love generate, they can just drop out a bit. Like Timothy Leary, they had the famous uh, saying, like, oh, I just want to go out or whatever. Yeah. Basically, do nothing, you know, or whatever. Um, when the CIA, a lot of the LSD that came out in the 60s was CMA labs. I mean, it, it's come out. You know? I mean, this guy named uh, Tom O'Neill put out the book Chaos mm -hmm. that ties MKUltra, Mind Control, and Charlie Manson, right. CIA, LSD. But here's the thing. Uh, I'll say I do have a hero. guy named Dave McGowan. He wrote a book, right? I'm I'm friends with his brother, Craig. You know, I'm still Canyon. trying to get it. Craig to come on my uh, podcast because uh, Dave was murdered and uh, Craig was around during that time. He got a fast acting Jack Ruby like aggressive cancer and ironically ended up passing uh, having a horrible, horrible painful death on November 22nd, 2015 of all days. JFK day, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, not, I'm just saying it was like almost ironic. It's just an ironic thing. But he got this weird 
he got this a cancer that just it ate him like down to the ball. It was after he did an expose on Caravan to Midnight, John Wells. He did an expose uh, in his examining the footage from the Boston bombing, all these weird characters that were doing weird stuff. Kind of like the documentary I was telling you about January 6th. There's a, a similar guy named Gary McBride. Uh, he analyzed all the footage from inside the Capitol where you see people with hand signals. You see uh, basically like actors, Asian provocateurs. They're getting into place. They're like setting up. They're not reacting the way that they should be. It, it, it's like an engineered thing. And Gabe McGowan had this whole thing with Boston bombing because he was looking at the footage and the, the pictures and everything. He did a whole like thing on his website about it. And basically showed that like a lot of these characters like that ended up uh, supposedly losing limbs and things. He basically proved that there was a lot of them that, you know, I hate to say it because it, it goes into the hoax or territory. And I think on purpose because it makes you afraid to say anything. But there's a lot of people that are just laying around or even smiling and texting that are supposedly bleeding to death. And Dave points out these things. That's actually what a lot of people think got Dave killed was that he, him paying attention to that, and pointing it out. Anyway, right. the reason why I bring Dave up is because if you want to really see uh, what, how engineered that whole hippie and anti-war movement was in the 60s, Dave uncovered a lot in a book, probably his most famous book, uh, behind it, um, well, Laurel Canyon in California, right? Um, behind the canyon, uh, you have it. Weird scenes inside the canyon. Yes. I, I'm like one of his biggest fans. I'm yeah. just, I've no, it's a, it, I get it. I get it. I do that all but the he time. He goes into how um, most of the musicians, mm. for instance, of the 60s, were military brats right. and had either uh, military fathers or uh, intelligence agency fathers or whatever, including Kim Morrison's father right. was in charge of the Gulf of Tonkin incident right. that later on we found out never actually happened. Which was got us the, into Vietnam. Yeah, that was the false flag that got us into Vietnam. Yeah. That was Kim Morrison's <laughs> father. Wow. And meanwhile, doors. Kim Morrison's like all of a sudden... He admit that he had no musical talent for that. Right. And all of a sudden, he's, he's doing, he's singing. He's, what is going on? They, like, something weird. And, and a lot of these other musicians, uh, you would come to find out, we're not really good musicians, like, especially live. It makes you think, you know, there are, are other series. Like, some people think the Beatles were put together by this thing called Tavistock. Like, right. if you really want to go down the rabbit hole. I don't really subscribe to that, but I don't poo-poo it either because anything's possible. I have to start researching this stuff. But weird scenes inside the cave. I love the fact that you have that. Do you have, just out of curiosity, do you have a program to kill as well? No. That was his book before that. No, I know Dave has a bunch of great books, a lot of them dealing with uh, communism and politics and, and how these movements operate behind the scenes of those parties. Well, the program to kill goes mm -hmm. into the, the idea that the serial killer phenomenon right. was an engineered thing right, as well. Right, right. And what replaced it was the late Bill Cooper brought this up. The spree shooters all of a sudden mm. replaced the serial killer, right? Not too many serial killers after like Dahmer gets killed in prison and stuff like that. You don't really have these um, celebrity serial killers anymore, right? 
they get replaced by these uh, Columbine-like, Virginia Tech-like, mindless spree shooters that have mm. no motive. They act like they're the Terminator. Clearly, they're either brainwashed or something. They're on you know certain drugs or whatever. That became a phenomenon. They replaced that. And then now we have other things like these viruses that some people think, I, I want to go into that. Some people think that, that that's like a bioweapon or something. It's a lot of people that want to hurt us, basically, that are running the show, you know, either for evil means or just monetary or just to keep their own power. But anyway, that so uh, Dave McGowan went into that. And when you brought that up earlier, I was like, I wonder if he's ever heard of Dave. Because he went into all that mm. and like the Halloween music scene. Well, and if, if my understanding is correct, Dave um, might not have talked about Courtney directly, but I think I heard yeah. maybe through Potash or somebody that Courtney had a military connection, whether through her father or through some connection she made when she... She slept she, with a lot of military generals. Right. She was yep. used as a sort of uh, kitten as they're called, a sex kid. It's like a woman named Kathy O'Brien is a famous champ, whether you believe her or not. Mm. She claims that like people like Dick Cheney in the late 80s uh, used her as like a sex slave type mm. thing, like an MK Ultra mind control type thing. Mm. And I don't know if I believe her or not. I was able to get her on. Uh, I protest with Donald uh, for an interview. But she actually describes certain things on Dick Cheney that other people that had been with Dick Cheney kind of confirmed, mm. you know, especially about certain areas. I won't say <laughs> she actually described me almost like, like to a T or whatever, you know what I mean? So I don't know. Maybe she actually did see some. Dave went into this whole other thing about how uh, Dick Cheney liked to hunt humans, women in particular. And you know what? It, that's not really, in my opinion, not really out of the realm of possibility because you know, like the the book, um, the the um, most dangerous game. Right. It's about that because the guy is rich and he's got nothing else to hunt. So have you seen? Be. But anyway, have you seen the movie uh, Society with um, Billy Warlock? I only, I only did recently last year, and it made me sit to my stomach. Like with yeah. certain scenes, like with they, I think what they called the boat when they ended up almost like an orgy type thing. I'm oh, like, oh yeah, my yeah, God. Yeah. I'm like, I, that's stuff like that, but maybe not. I well, they were like aliens or the something, The beginning right? of that scene, and I believe the book doesn't go into the alien aspect. I think the filmmakers made it more sci-fi oh, okay. to take away from the grotesque horror of right. that scene. Because you're right, it is very disturbing to a certain extent. But the idea that, you know, the, the dangerous game is about, you know... Uh, it's sort of played into the, the, the movie. The well, you yeah, notice yeah. how he gets this like collar thrown around his neck when it's yeah. revealed that everybody's there for his like, you know, murder or something. And, yeah. um, and, well, and it makes you think about how these elite families use their own children, their own offspring, yeah. at least in this film, the kid is adopted into the family, which maybe explains why they have no love for him, but there yeah, is a sister even gets in on it with right. so I'm like, oh my god. Yeah, no, yeah. and it's, but that movie really, I think, uh, isn't exaggerating when we look at some well, of these, yeah. these, you know, really dark uh, cases where, you know, certain groups of people are involved in unsolved mysteries, unsolved Case murders. Case in point. Yeah. Case in point, uh, recently, the Lone Ranger, 
the one that started with Johnny Depp. Um, his name's escaping me right now. He comes from old money. Armin, um, uh, Army Hammer, yeah. Army Hammer was accused of being a cannibal. And his father was mixed up with George H. W. Bush in some scandal in 1989. Wow. He comes from real old money. So when you look into real old money, you start seeing stuff like um, child molestation. You start seeing things right. like cannibalism, possible, you know, possibly because it's decadent. It's stuff like they're so bored because they they're used to having everything. It's almost like they have to create this disgusting thing just to get some kind of jolt. So I, I don't know the psychology of it, but that's all I can think that explanation behind it. Well, and if you look at if you look at history only a hundred and fifty years ago, right? The yeah. culture was around the uh movers and shakers. Like the eye the spotlight was on people like Rockefeller. And you see after yeah. World War II Rothschild. Yeah. they create this phony class of celebrities <gasps> to distract everyone from the real movers and shakers, you know? It yeah. seemed like that uh you know like the bohemian gross though right these rich people they go from wanting to be philanthropists in the spotlight to wanting to be completely unknown and i think that's part of this you know uh the people that really run the show right will never know their names right right ever and it seems like that was a a concerted effort on their part to manipulate our culture uh so that there's distractions and that we don't actually really see the rich and powerful we get this sort of lower echelon of that which is these celebrities and when the celebrities get out of line these weird mysterious things happen to them i mean you can just go through the list of 27 club members right who um you know passed away and a lot of those people were born of military families it's almost like they offer their children up to be sacrificed you know, uh, to play this role and then to to be sacrificed. Well, that's kind of like with Wayne Harris, father of Eric Harris. A lot of people think that his physician with like uh, special ops and, you know, clandestine stuff, that that type of mindset, it's almost like a patriotic duty to sacrifice their son for this cause or whatever, for lack of a better term, for whatever that op was supposed to be, which was, in my opinion, more trauma-based brand control, like the JFK assassination, 9-11, Oklahoma City, keep everyone scared, you know, keeps them more controllable. Dave McGowan brought that up a lot. That's actually where I learned a lot of this from. Um, that would make sense, because it would almost be like, I'm doing my patriotic duty by sacrificing my son to some weird cause that you and I will, wouldn't understand, but it would further society you know into something else you know mm. you know more censorship our rights more rights taken away stuff like that uh so i think you're on to something there and these i don't even want, like using the word the term people because they don't act like human beings a lot of them you know mm. like they don't really have empathy or whatever so to sacrifice uh, a child i mean uh, that wouldn't surprise me Yeah, it does seem like they've uh, separated themselves to such a degree through their, you know, incestuous generational relationships, you know, keeping it within this network of families that, yeah, they do feel like we're maybe uh, less than them. Well, look at the royal family. Yeah. Product of incest for generations. (laughs) They wanted to be pure blood or whatever. Yeah. It's not really pure when, like, you know, there's mutation. You know, some people think that Jack the Ripper was 
and actually uh, one of the, the royals. They that's a theory to this day. Right. And Scotland Yard still has classes like stuff about Jack the Ripper. Why would they still have that if that theory there wasn't something to that theory mm. that he was actually one of the royal family members, like one of the princes? Right. But he liked killing prostitutes. You know what I mean? That is a strong theory. I think from hell, the book from hell, and then later the movie Giant Depp, I think goes into that aspect. That it could have been, you know, the suspect was a royal family member. You know, yeah. why would anything be classified from that era? Right. Day, you know what I mean? Right. And so. Depp himself is a very curious individual who maybe we should revisit. But before we stray too far away from Cobain and uh, the overall message of, of, you know, what we can learn from his sad passing and, and what we can maybe do to help change the impression. Because, you know, that point about people copycat suiciding really touches my heart. It's, it's a terrible thing to think that that would be the result, but it, it almost seems manufactured that way because the whole music scene took a darker turn after that period of grunge and it almost felt like the school shooter uh wave that we were just talking about was fomented to some degree by that music especially with rap music today i mean it's it's really really pronounced in rap music but um you have this really hostile death focused music that comes in and i wonder if they you know, put a guy like Cobain up to that, knowing it'll have that effect. I mean, given that the circumstances were so sketchy, um, we didn't get into the details of the shotgun, but allegedly that was on the premises for home defense. He did not have uh, really a lot of uh, shotgun shells in his house right there it was just uh, just just forgive me for like one second oh, yeah we can pause it. if yeah we can no, pause because someone came home and, and uh yeah they, yeah let's pause i don't they want to watch tv and stuff i, I don't just, want to hear about us ranting about well no yeah no I just, <laughs> I just, don't uh, worry we'll pause we'll pause okay literally i'm just walking down the hall to yeah uh, yeah no another worries. room with sor a source of light but what you were saying yeah i uh i think uh you're on to something when we talk about I think there really are things like uh, blood sacrifices with a lot of these uh, incidents. You know, I can't really prove it, but that whole elite thing that we were just talking about, I think they believe a lot of this stuff. Um, you, know, you know, even if it's not real, like this dark forces or, you know, uh, sacrifice. I think they actually believe it. It harkens back to what you were saying about uh, potash and stuff like that. And Dave McGowan, right? Dave McGowan on his, uh, one of the interviews he did, um, he mentioned, someone asked him, goes, are you going to do a sequel to weird, weird scenes? Right. Like with the, the eighties and the nineties, like the punk movement and grunge and things like that. And he said, yeah, eventually I'll get there, but I want to cover other things like Lincoln and wagon, the moon doggy about the, you know, the moon landing. So he wrote other things. He goes, I have other things I want to tackle first, but he was going to get to the grunge stuff. And he was a good, he was a big fan of Alice in Chains and actually wrote about when Lane Staley passed away on April 5th, the same day that Kurt died, uh, April 5th, eight years apart. 
Elaine Staley actually thought that Kurt was murdered as well. And he would be in a good position to know because um, they had a they had a mutual drug dealer, right? And they had a mutual friend, Mark Lanigan, from the Screaming Trees. I don't know if you remember that. They, their big single was I Nearly Lost You. Anyway, so yeah, that was a go between uh, Kurt and Lane. Mm. And there's a book that came out about Alice in Chains that goes into how Courtney was frantic, actually called Lane Staley's uh, stepfather looking for Lane because she wanted to know if Lane had, uh, had talked to Kurt when um, he was missing, right? Oh, yeah, I missed that too, Diva. The phone records. Mm. Courtney, the whole reason she hired Tom Grant to find Kurt, it was to find Kurt on Easter Sunday, right? But she already knew Kurt's movements and knew that Kurt was in their house the day before, on April 2nd, before she even um, called up Tom Grant. So the whole reason for hiring him was BS right from the beginning. Yeah, that is very curious that she calls this guy. Callie, Callie called Courtney a whole bunch of times at the Peninsula Hotel in these records and um, told uh, Courtney that Kurt had just arrived from the airport huh. and it was in his room. So she knew where Kurt was the whole time. Right. But it makes it look like she's the concerned uh, wife that has a suicide, suicidal husband, and he just bought a shotgun, you know. Right. He had the shotgun for home protection. He had two other shells in the gun. What was he going to do, like, if he, is he going to miss the first time? You know what I mean? It was, it was three shells in the gun for home protection. Like, he's not going to load up the whole thing if he's, planning on just shooting himself once right it was yeah it was actually it was a lower caliber um uh ammunition because it was meant to not be able to pierce walls and you know kill someone on the other side of the wall like his daughter or courtney or whatever so it was actually not as powerful as people might think too mm. the ammunition was for home protection because people were kind of um Courtney, she uh, had the fence that was around the property taken down. Why would she do that? I don't know. Maybe to scare the hell out of her husband that, that uh, she all of a sudden now he doesn't want to be Mr. Rockstar and turns down 10 million bucks for losing. She's furious and everything. Maybe she's starting to intimidate him, right? And also she started acting very erratic when Kurt started to regain his memories from Rome, that was actually, I think that was like the Rome was the month before he actually died. Right. He went into a coma and what had happened was his stomach was filled with the date rape drug, bro, hypnol or whatever. He uh, went into a coma. He had champagne in his stomach and he didn't drink champagne. And he, um, he didn't really like alcohol. The only reason he had alcohol before was because of the pinch herb in his stomach, right? Mm. He actually had bruises and stuff on his body. He had his coat on. He had a fight with Courtney in the motel room in Rome. And Callie was in the room as well. Um, the idea is that they, uh, 
they for, when Kurt had his coat on, was ready to leave because he was upset that he found out Courtney was cheating on him. You know, on top of all this other stuff, you know, just spending his money on stupid crap or whatever. He actually had a note that was ready written, and it was saying, "I'm leaving you." She admits that on one of the cassettes, Tom Cramp, that Sergeant Cameron gives the note back to Courtney after Kurt is dead. And he says, you might want to get rid of this. It's not going to do you or your family any good. This is the lead homicide investigator given a piece of evidence that would show that Kurt was leaving Courtney. Like, this is a month before his body's found. Giving it to Courtney to destroy. And she admits it. Like, on the set. They, she says this. They, I'm not making this. Yeah, wow. It's on. You know, she's lying. Like, she talks about how she can play the media like a shit. Like, They'll believe everything. So she, and she has people plant stories in the media. Back like to she, back to harsh. Rome. Back to Rome. Oh, though. Yeah, so she no, it's so okay. many things. So yeah. she she drugs Kurt in Rome, and he goes into sure, a the coma. Prescription was her prescription because she got it in Britain because it was still legal there in mm. the states. That's it was her prescription, right? Um, she didn't call the ambulance for uh, three hours. He was unconscious on the floor. She was waiting for him to pass away, and he just wouldn't. Then when she finally had to give in, because if she waited any longer, it would be obvious, you know. She claimed that, oh, she passed out or whatever, you know, there. Um, he was in a coma for a while. While he's in a coma, she's telling anybody and everybody it's a suicide attempt, right? But when he wakes up from the coma, that changes that, oh, it was an accident, you know, because uh, he's like, no, I, uh, he goes, I don't remember. Here's the thing. She starts getting very erratic in the last month because he's starting to regain some of the memories of what happened in that motel room mm. with her and Callie, the ex-boyfriend, mm. the one that I confronted. Right. Uh, Francis Bean's Manny, he's a current junkie at the time. Pat Smear showed up, too, at one point. And Pat Smear was another member that of Nirvana's live touring that Courtney kind of forced onto Kurt. Um, he was in the band The Germs in the 70s, it was a legendary punk band. Um, later on, Dave Grohl, of all people, would invite Pat to be a part of the Foo Fighters. And anyway, so Pat actually privy to a lot more stuff too that he lets on. Tom Grant let the cat out of the bag with that because. Tom Grant finally uh, realized that Pat Smear wasn't going to do the right thing. So Tom Grant was like, you know what? I'm going to tell the story. Courtney sent Pat Smear to go get information uh, at uh, Tom Grant's Beverly Hills office to see how far along uh, the murder investigation Tom was. And Tom didn't give Pat anything, right? Then when Pat realized that Tom wasn't going to you know, give him any kind of information to get back to Courtney. Pat Smear started bawling in tears and saying he's so scared and so afraid. Um, so I think Pat Smear, um, you know, knows a lot more because he actually drove Kurt to the airport at certain points. And mm. he was a part of the group, Callie, that was in the house too, here and there in a moment. Eric Rollinson, the one that Kristen, they're the boyfriend of Kristen Faff and Cole's guitarist he was with Kurt at certain points too so he's kind of suspect as well 
Anyway, I'm all over the place, dude. But no, I'm, no, no. There's so much there. But what I'm saying is, he was just surrounded by these vipers and everything. Yeah. And what had happened was, um, Courtney knew exactly where Kurt was. Callie uh, contacted Courtney and gave his whereabouts the whole time. Um, also, what had happened was, Kurt, after leaving Exodus the rehab, Kurt, being so suicidal, went to a payphone and called Courtney and told her exactly where he was going and who he was going to be with. So people don't know that either. And right. he actually bought a ticket for a woman named Elizabeth that Tom hasn't, Tom knows who it is to this day. He hasn't disclosed it. He said he's going to wait for if the case ever gets reopened because I guess that's a big part of it. Who this Elizabeth person was that Kurt got the other plane ticket for. So there's a lot of weird stuff. Kurt let Courtney know what he was doing and where he was going and where he was there. And then uh, Callie called her and told her, yeah, he's he's here on the second. Here's the other thing that a lot of people don't even know, even Potash and people like that, or even uh, Ian Halpern and Max Wallace who wrote Who Killed Kurt Cobain. No one picked up on this, but there was a melody maker uh, issue in 1994. It was a, that was a Brit, a British, uh, you know, kind of heavy metal tabloid, uh, newspaper magazine, melody maker. Right when Kurt's body was found, they said in that, that, that issue, uh, of his suicide, they said that Kurt had contacted the Seattle police on April 2nd in fear of his life. And this is someone that they claim was, uh, suicidal right he filed a police report that disappeared and most likely Antonio Terry who was working for Courtney made that police report disappear because that shows that a suicidal man is in fear of his life and his Volvo that was parked in the garage underneath the greenhouse where his body was found all four tires were smashed right. they didn't want Kurt being able to move around his other car Someone parked across town and put a for sale sign in the back window. Tom supposedly knows who did that, but he's certain things Tom doesn't want to. But because if Tom lets everything out that he has, then if it ever did go to trial, like down the line, Corey could retrace the steps and fill in the blanks. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, okay, that, that, that's the reason for this. That. That's why, like, during, uh, that's why they don't, you know, the lawyer, the prosecutors don't they show their hands because they want they want to uh, get you trapped if you're lying. You know what I mean? So he doesn't say everything because he feels like if there was a prosecution, a real prosecution, that the prosecutors are going to need everything they that he has. So that's why he doesn't release everything. Some people oh, go, oh, makes... yeah, if he was the real deal, why wouldn't he just release everything? Yeah, because if cold cases can go 20, 30 years. And then all of a sudden something happens where, like Michael Skakel, uh, Kennedy cousin, uh, I forget the, the girl's name, but he ended up being prosecuted like 40 years after the fact for uh, Martha Moxley's murder. Yeah. So that's an example of a cold case where a suspect actually did go on trial. But it just took 40 years. Right. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. And Tom Grant also keeps going. Because of those letters from people that were thanking him for uh, letting them know that it was most likely a murder because they were thinking about 
killing themselves like the other copycats. You know what I mean? And I heard Tom Graham, who I actually helped in a similar capacity uh, that I do with Donald Jeffries. Um, I actually helped uh, Tom Grant in through Twitter in like 2008, 2009. I actually helped him with uh, obtaining Courtney's tweets at the time because obviously she had him blocked and Twitter was brand new, right? And she didn't know who I was. So I was sending Tom all of her tweets that pertain to uh, Francis's trust fund being uh, drained by mysterious figures that most likely were her. So he was able to use those tweets that I sent him for uh, some civil case down the line that kind of proved that she was full of it and just uh, leaving a trail to show that she wasn't guilty, but she was ripped off her in the water, you know, all that mm-hmm. thing. Here's the kicker. Francis Bean, I'm all over the place, but it's popping in my head right now. Francis Bean married a guy, a musician, right? Isaiah Silver. She gave Isaiah as a wedding gift. Uh, she gave Isaiah Kurt's uh, unplugged uh, acoustic guitar, right? They ended up getting divorced. It was messy. Corey was furious. She thought that, you know what? He should give back the guitar. You know, but it wasn't up to Courtney. It was a wedding gift from Francis to him. Mm. She hired a bunch of these uh, goons to kidnap him and beat him up and possibly kill him to get that guitar back during the divorce proceedings or whatever. So uh, that was a thing. And it came out during that that Wendy O'Connor, Kurt's mother, actually in the, told uh, certain people, because it was in the transcripts, that she thinks Kurt was murdered. <laughs> so that's just Kurt's own mother. But she didn't say anything for the longest time because Courtney bought her a house and became buddy-buddy with her after Kurt died. And Kurt and Wendy didn't have a close relationship. Kurt didn't really like Wendy. She kicked him out uh, when he was a, uh, a teenager. He had to sleep in like cars and people's couches. So him and his mother, they didn't have the closest relationship, right? Right. So she wasn't that devastated, to be, to be honest. Like, hmm. she ends up getting the house, uh, and, but then later on, the tides turn where her and Corny start feuding. And that was, like, later on. And for um, for custody of Francis, like, before she was 18 or whatever, and that, that became all thing. Hmm. So there's a lot of weird stuff, like, the well, guy that the main guy, main thug that she hired to uh, rough up Isaiah was the same guy that was um, around Britney Spears when she was all uh, acting nutty and stuff. It's the same creep that was um, pretending to be her manager. That's why Britney Spears' father had to like step in and take a, get the court to give him like guardianship of uh, Britney because of this guy. Courtney loves like bestie, whatever. So Courtney. It, Murder is not out of the realm of possibility. Allegedly, I'll just say that because we're in an era now where well, and we should end up owing two trillion or something. You know, in a court yeah. of fire. Well, we should remind people that she is still alive, Courtney, and uh, she had just published in this past August a memoir that she spent ten years working on. It's titled uh, "A Girl." What is it? It's a, a girl weird... that's in Jeffrey Epstein's black book. Because <laughs> that came out too. Well, that I'm sure. As well, I'm yeah. sure. But the her 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 memoir is titled "The Girl with the Most Cake," which seems a little bit uh, 
pompous yeah. to say the least. Uh, yeah. Anyways, yeah, it it does also kind of remind me of the plot of Chinatown, where there is yeah. a private eye who gets involved in this case, and it's sort of funny that like you know, he gets hired by someone that ends up being a different person altogether than who he assumes. And this is kind of what happens in this story where she hires a guy who ends up kind of being the bane to her plot, right? I mean, if what Tom is onto is correct, then, you know, I I agree with... So Bleach is about Tom and Mm. the case. Well, and and I would agree with Tom in the sense that, you know, a lot of this stuff should be played close to his vest uh, considering how these court proceedings tend to work and, and how yeah. someone like Courtney Love can probably hire some, uh, you know, pit bull prosecutors to go in and, and snarl up whatever they she can. She made his life hell. Wow. Um, she got his uh, PI uh, license revoked uh, temporarily. He ended up, because I told you the, su- uh, the copycat suicides really mm. touched him. Like, yeah. And the fact that people that didn't kill themselves wrote to him thanking him that he got that, that what he knows out there because it changed their mind and that their hero didn't go the way that they thought that he went. That's a big motivator because a lot of people say, oh yeah, Tom Grant, he's making money off of all this, right? He's being, he's exploiting, right? He went bankrupt like three times in the nineties, whatever, uh, trying to keep this case in the limelight. She hired every um, scumbag lawyer and PI to, do whatever they could, and she would threaten the radio stations that would have uh, Tom Grant on to tell a story. She threatened them with like cease and desist letters, but never ever took actual legal action, ever. And that's the thing that you got to look at because if she ever did, <laughs> then Tom would have right where he wants her, where he could depose her. Um. And she would have to answer certain things that she doesn't want to answer. So for a long time, she would just intimidate uh, places like MTV or uh, radio stations and stuff. With these and desist. She even did the same thing when Soap and Bleach was released. She had the gall to send cease and desist letters to certain movie theaters that were going to show it. They ended up showing it anyway. She has a history of never actually taking the next step and you know, legal action because then she could be deposed and put on the stand. Mm. And that's, that's what Tom wants. That's not what she wants. She just has empty threats when it comes to Tom, right? She's scared of Tom. Anybody else that crosses her path, she's known to like legend with like, uh, uh, what's his name? Some, she took an Oscar one time and like beat, uh, Victoria, I think her name was. She was a. Uh, she wrote for uh, Vanity Fair. It's like it did like an unflattering story on Courtney. She ended up grabbing uh, Quentin Tarantino's Oscar for Paul Picture, bludgeoning this woman in, like at the Oscar in the head. So hey, if you cross your path, well, you even look at her wrong, right? She 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 think nothing. She won't think twice about using violence or whatever. Mm. But when it comes to Tom Grant. She can, you hear her in her voice on these tapes. She gets scared, and Courtney Love don't get scared with anybody except for Tom Grant. Mm. She gets scared, and she keeps him on the payroll too. Once she realizes that he's on to her, you would think that you know, and basically accusing you of having your spouse killed, right? 
what would you think that a normal normal? What do you think anyone else would do? They would get rid of his ass in a second, right? They say, I don't want you. I like you. Basically saying, I killed like my, my loved one here. No, she keeps him on the payroll to do other jobs. Almost like keep your enemy closer. She keeps on the payroll for like another eight months. Hmm. She, it gives him like basically what he describes as meaningless um, jobs. Like go, uh, go watch this drug dealer's house, like surveil this or whatever to keep him busy from actually continuing his investigation into Kurt's death. She keeps paying him. That's not normal. Right. She's scared. To it's like she wants to know what he's up to. And you cut him loose. You don't know who he's talking to. You don't know what he's up to. But you give him meaningless jobs that she probably didn't. She probably didn't even need it. Uh, the surveillance footage to uh, blackmail people. But it was maybe a little extra. You know, maybe it would be a help or whatever. But basically, after a certain amount of time, she ended up letting him go. But she kept him on the she kept him on the line for about eight months. Any other person would have fired his ass. Yeah, if you're uh, if you're basically accusing me of killing my loved one or whatever. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. No, she was. He's the only one that she's afraid of, and you can hear it in her voice on these tapes. That he has a, or in soap and bleach. All right, and that's one of many things that you can point at in this case that show that Courtney is way more. Uh, guilty than she appears innocent and he wants to, he wants to get all he wants at a certain point is they get Callie guy that I could mm. run she wants to get uh, Tom just wants to get Callie down to his Beverly Hills office for a polygraph mm. and Courtney on the tapes keeps saying that's all that that's that's what will clear my name like to you and you're gonna owe me a big effing apology when you find out she keeps promising Tom that she's going to send Callie to his office to do just that. You know, then Tom says, then I'll apologize to you. And I'll say, all right, well, we can scratch that. And uh, he's clear. And all that. he never showed up to his office ever. So she lied to him. She kept saying, oh, okay, all right. And that's all it's going to take for you. Uh, I don't think I'm, you know, a killer or whatever. Says it on the thing. Never, ever sent Callie. In fact, she sent Callie to a rehab supposedly uh, with a hundred thousand dollars. It sounds more like a payoff. She also coincidentally paid Kelly's construction father a lot of money to tear down the greenhouse where Kurt's body was found. Yeah. Another payoff in my opinion, a lot of shady stuff. Then she tells everyone that the rifle was melted down for uh, what was the organization mothers against guns or something. Come to find out, then they reopened uh, Kurt's uh, death investigation, which is basically just to appease like people like myself, but just it may us raise more questions. The gun's still on the evidence thing, so she lied about that too. Huh. And the gun is too long for Kurt to actually be able to uh, reach around. He was kind of, uh, you know, he wasn't exactly short, but he wouldn't have been. The, the, when you see the guy, the cop holding up. The gun that the the shotgun, it just seems like it's too long, right? Kurt. So right. that also makes you go, "What is that?" Like mm. his heart. Okay, here's the other thing too that proves that he was already dead before the shotgun went off at all. His heart was stopped. He only had a little, little, uh, little tiny little bit of blood coming out of his ear. Mm. If his heart was still pumping, 
that would have been a mess. Yeah. Because blood went away everywhere. Well, there was no, no blood. Let's it's clarify that for people. The, the, the bullet wound was pretty minor, right? It wasn't it like. It was in the soft palate in his mouth, right? Okay. Just a little tiny little trail of blood. But Corgi went into the press, right? Described this gory scene where right. there was like, his brains were everywhere. For Francis, you know, down the line, got another image of her father, you know, real sick stuff. But she was insistent on giving his gory image to the press for all the fans to hear and all this other stuff. But meanwhile, you actually see, you see some of the, the pictures that were eventually developed, not of his face or whatever, but there is just a little tiny little little blood thing. And that tells me that his heart was already stopped. Well, and that would make sense if, you know, we're talking about contract killers, people who maybe she hired to do this. I mean, they would probably know that if you stop someone's heart, there'd be less evidence, less blood splatter. They could, you know, commit this murder and, and maybe even make it look like a an overdose slash suicide, which well, uh, they did test. Marks. He had punch marks inside both elbows, like the inside, like this here. Right. It was bruised. Someone injected him. I think it was Callie. And then Callie continued it. It's probably on the phone with Courtney yeah, the whole time. She's probably telling allegedly people. All right. I'll just say allegedly. But it makes sense because Callie was the only constant in that right. house the whole time. Right. So he was in the greenhouse with somebody he knew. And also his hair was neatly combed too. He just had a shotgun go off in his mouth. The guy who found his body, right? This electrician who Courtney was trying to get to discover that it almost seems like she was trying to get him to discover Kurt's body a few days before because he uh, he was supposed to be there for the security lights above the greenhouse, mm. which if you really looked at it, there was no real reason for uh, that work to be done at the time. If Kurt really was missing or whatever. And it was like pouring rain the whole time. But eventually the guy did show up on that Friday and he described how Kurt it had the appearance that his hair was neatly combed. That just tells me that he was either shot in the mouth after his heart was already stopped, injected three times the least dose of heroin. There was diazepam found, I guess, in the, the soda can that was nearby or whatever. So that would have also played a part in whatever. But if his hair is combed, it's either he had a struggle or something like he had a shotgun going his mouth. His hair is not gonna be neatly combed. And he wouldn't just have a little thing of blood. I'm not a medical doctor, but it doesn't make sense. Mm. He just has a little thing of blood coming out of his ear. Right. His heart had to have been stopped when the gun went off. And here's the thing. They also say three times a lethal dose of heroin would have made him go to sleep immediately. He wouldn't have time to pull the trigger. Mm. So there's a lot of weird stuff. And, you know, the shotgun shell was on the wrong side of the body, apparently, too. All the other stuff was like too far away from where his body was located. There was no legible fingerprints on the shotgun. Ooh, by all accounts, three people had three people had uh, managed to uh, handle this weapon at the time. The gun store owner, Dylan Carlson, Kurt's best friend, uh, who Kurt had wanted uh, to buy the shotgun. So it wasn't in Kurt's name and that Courtney wouldn't know he had it. Another reason why, why wouldn't you want your spouse to know you just purchased some home protection? You know what I mean? Mm. He's a fear of his life and uh, he only had a wife. 
I think at a certain point, he started getting the memories back too from the Rohypno. Right. That's and why Ro- Cordy was getting real erratic because he remembered what possibly went down in that, that room, motel, hotel room. Well, then the jig's up, right? He tried to kill me. And then it were really done. And we're going to get like the real cops involved, not your buddies in Seattle PD or whatever. Yeah. So this go it goes on. Well, yeah, there I, was I, there was another piece of damning evidence which is yeah. uh, involving this alleged note that was left behind. You you mentioned yeah. uh not in this conversation but on another conversation I had heard you a part of where See, I, uh, I started it out with you. Yes, a Rosemary Carroll entertainment lawyer called Tom over to her office. He said, "Oh, look what Courtney left behind at my house. Right. Backpack. Inside there were handwriting samples." This is in the movie Silk and Bleach as well, by the way. They show you the handwriting samples. Uh, they did some analysis. Those four lines that allude to uh, wanting to leave the planet, you know, suicide. The rest of those, the notes like plays like a retirement letter to his fans. Those four lines, they do it on camera in the movie Silk and Bleach. They do it on camera with all these uh, practice sheets because Tom was smart enough to Xerox them so tom still had them all those years later they basically matched those four lines all that because it courtney was writing the same letters over and over again like she's trying to perfect something right and i found something myself that was curious she had a buddy courtney had a buddy that was uh, a local journalist uh in seattle music journalist named charles cross he was basically her mouthpiece the whole time when it came to any books, official books about Kurt's life, he wrote the one, uh, I think it was Heavier Than Heaven or whatever. Basically, it's what it is, whatever Courtney was telling Charles to write, not necessarily what actually happened. Hmm. Well, Charles came out with another book called Cobain, Cobain Unseen uh, a few years after that. And I found something curious that I've never heard anyone else pick up on or talk about. There's a passage at the, towards the end of the Cobain Unseen, which is basically a book that's made up primarily of pictures from Kurt's life, right? So there's not too much writing in it. But towards the end of the book, Charles Cross, or his buddy, one that is official biographer, he, he writes how when he actually gets to look at the suicide note, suicide note, the court, he shows it to him. He describes how tortured, how much pain Kurt was in, because it looks like he pressed down so hard on the page that he was, it just showed the anguish and pain. He's describing things he couldn't possibly know what was Kurt had. You know what I mean? It, it, it's BS. But what it, what it showed me was that he's describing how the, whoever had the pen was pressing down so hard on those last four lines. They're tracing. Right. They're, whoever's doing is tracing from those handwriting samples. And no one ever pointed that out. And I picked that up like years ago. And I'm like, he's describing tracing because if you're, you got everything to lose, you're going to be so careful that you're not even going to realize that you're pressing down to make sure it's perfect. Right. Not realizing, screwing it up in a yeah. way. Yeah, but that's no, just something sure. that I found. That's There's another tale. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and it all adds up to to very damning on the part of Courtney and 
I don't know. Obviously, she has a lot of influence. She's probably connected to this larger network. You mentioned uh, very briefly. Jeffrey Epstein. The Epstein she had a relationship connection. with him. I didn't know that until last year. Mm. She's in his black book, really? which tells me, I don't know if she was like a Maxwell or maybe she was procuring um, younger ladies. I mean, she basically a CIA agent on his deathbed told Hank Harrison, her father, that she was helping uh, pass out, you know, get people in certain rock scenes hooked on LSD in the 80s that CIA gave him to give to her and uh, people like her to kind of corrupt stuff, like in the 60s, the hippie, the hippie movement, get the musicians all messed up, you know, on different things, you know? Because I think I think psilocybin, personally, is beneficial, right? And it's natural. LSD is a different thing altogether. It's in a lab. And right. it's nefarious in my opinion, right? It has a similar effect, but it's not a mushroom that goes out of the ground. But that's a different thing. But if the CIA having these uh, weird, mysterious people, groupies or whatever, passing out like in certain music scenes, there's all kinds of stuff that goes back to weird scenes inside the canyon. That type of thing. Yoko Ono was accused of doing that before she met. John, and then when she did meet John, she claimed she didn't know what the hell the Beatles was. <laughs> Beatles were the biggest thing on the planet, so she was full of, she was full of it there too. You know, she yeah. was like almost mirrors a Courtney Love type, like only a generation prior. You know what I mean? Like almost like a handler to John after getting him back on the heroin and all this stuff. You know, mm. it, it, I don't know. It's just a lot of shady stuff. Then Epstein comes in with that. And, She's right there, and then she claims that, oh, he's a creep. I never met with him. There's pictures of her and him hanging out all the time. So, so she just lies and lies and lies. And if she's hanging out with Epstein, and Epstein's hanging out with Clinton, Trump has an island child molestation, and human trafficking, possibly snuff films, you know, stuff. I saw the connection between Epstein and the toy box killer, and that's a whole other thing they both lived near each other in New Mexico. Toy box killer, that was a pretty nasty thing. But he had a satellite, right? He had a $100,000 RV that he couldn't have possibly paid for on his own, this killer. But he had a satellite uh, component, almost like he was making these snuff films as he was torturing these women to death. Who was watching on the other end? Was it that elite thing that we were talking about? How, you know... They get their kicks, you know. The, the, there's been rumors for years in Hollywood, like uh, the underground parties where they watch literal snuff films, you know. Like uh, before the internet and the dark web, there was the black market, you know, there's like underground stuff. But that's a whole other thing. But I'm saying if Courtney's connected to this guy, he's connected to all the powers of be, like Clinton and all of that. Who's right. connected to Bush and then goes on and on and on. <laughs> And then she has all these connections, CIA. I didn't know that back initially, back in the day. And then when you start thinking about how she admits that she was sleeping around with military generals in Alaska, that doesn't make any sense. Like, what are you talking about? And then you're you're trying to seduce these uh, rock star wannabes or whatever, you're trying to groom them to be the next big thing. Mm. I don't know, dude. It's a 
It's- well, on the point of Alaska, Alaska seems to be one of these uh, frontier playgrounds for the elite, you know, a place where so few people are that they can have right. large swaths of land and do what they want uh, on those large swaths apparently of land. Apparently it's beautiful, too, and clean and stuff, so well, it and, makes sense. And not to mention all of the women that go missing uh, along the uh, highways up in that region, particularly now the Native I'm learning Americans. something right now. I didn't know that, that oh, I mean, it makes sense pointed out mm. that there's a lot of uh, women that go missing up there oh yeah that's I, wow. I forget the name of the like there's a term for this one road and it, you know sort similar to the trail of tears i think it's something along those lines because okay. a lot of native american women go hitchhiking on that road and end up missing so there's just native a, american women i think no i think i know something's coming back where it sounds familiar yeah, there's another there's another podcaster that uh, oh, yeah, really goes around sense. and talked about this. I don't know if David Polites mentions it in some of his conversations, but I know I've heard about it on another show. But anyways, Chris, this has been almost two hours. We're diving into some really deep stuff. Um, yeah. We kind of touched on a few different subjects that I'd like to invite you back on in the future to talk about, um, because I think this discussion connects very broadly right we have this nexus of crime uh right under our noses you know we're given these celebrity starlets we see the tragedies of their lives and the public is left to chalk it up to oh well that's just the price of fame when in reality there is an insidious uh puppeteer network that has you know use these people to play roles and to have an effect on us on a societal level. I mean, just the the amount of people that have taken their life in response to Kurt's death, that's, that should be evidence of that alone. Unfortunately, the heroin was reintroduced to generation X through the grunge lyrics and music. So I think Potash goes into that too. It makes sense. Unfortunately. Yeah. So Chris, this has been really, really insightful. Uh, definitely a darker subject, but I don't think we yeah. should shy away from this stuff if we're going to actually you you face know. it. If you want to change stuff, you know, right? Possibly. Right, and you know, for everyone out there whose family thinks they're crazy, maybe you you have one of your family members listen to an episode like this, and it's an uh, an area that they're more open to because it has those true crime overlaps. It involves well known people. It's less obscure. It happens. It happens, it, it happens all the time, just not really the famous people. Mm. So it's not out of the realm of possibility things I'm, I'm saying here. It's just magnified so much because of who it is. Right. With stage suicides by spouses that just want to collect insurance right. or even something even smaller than that. Like it happens all the time, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah it's greed. It's greed. Well, and it is it is like this social engineering thing with the you know you have the serial killers possibly being manufactured into the culture. You have these spree shootings that are now you know it feels like as a society we're being processed. There's an occult yeah. entrainment going on, and we need minds like yourself uh, sifting through the details and and showing people the light in this dark dark place. So I hand it over to you, brother. I really have a lot of respect for your research and, and 
what you've brought to my show today. I want to thank you for that. Obviously, folks can listen to you on the uh, Ocelli Network. That's Get Mad with Chris Graves. Is there yep. anywhere else folks can follow up with you, Twitter or something like that? Do you have yeah. like, anything else you'd uh, like yeah. to promote? <laughs> I'm from Massachusetts, right? So originally, I had um, I had kind of a, a curse word at the end of it. But when I started doing these uh, radio shows and all this stuff, I decided to be more classy and it was easier to try to get guests for my thing. I didn't have uh, a curse word at the end of it. So it right now I changed it. It's C Graves, all one word, C Graves, mass guy, G-U-Y. You just imagine what guy used to be. <laughs> I'm from Massachusetts, so we're called mass something. Sometimes. Yes. So I changed that to be a little more classier. So you can find me there if you want to find me there. Um, and also at Ocelli.com is where the podcast is. It also gets released to like places like Spreaker.com and like Podbean and things like that. It was on YouTube, but my producer Chuck Ocelli made the mistake of saying the word COVID. I think not even like in a conspiratorial said the word COVID. They yanked his whole YouTube thing. It was like 10 years old off, like. A month ago or so so i had my shows on there too that i could actually see how many people were actually listening mm. now i can't really do that with speaker and Podbean, but but anyway yeah so you can you can hear my uh you can uh hear my uh my voice uh doing that stuff so yeah it's been an honor and i like i said when i heard the name of your uh your uh, podcast it reminded me of like deborah gets red pilled mm. <laughs> it just it just it made me chuckle so Right. On. I, I can't wait to do it again. You know, I had a lot of fun. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Yeah, I agreed. And uh, I definitely think you ought to be on Rockfin. I know you're a part of slightly the, the uh, Don Jeffries America Unplugged thing, but we ought to well, get... The Paris Truther thing, yeah, is, yeah. Uh, is uh, Tony Arterburn's uh, America Unplugged, yeah. I protest. Tony produces his thing, too. Kind of like how Chuck produces Get Mad. Yeah. Like, like is Chuck not yeah, on so. Rockfin yet? Chuck actually started watching things, okay, cool. and so did six from the new prisoners that I'm on every week too. Okay, and just Rockin's giving them a harder time for some reason right now. Huh. Um, but everyone should be over there soon. So. Yeah, yeah, right on. So yeah, are I, you I, on Rockin too? By yeah, the way? I have some lists. Oh, I okay. have, I have a bunch of people following me on Rockfin. So please go support Chris Graves. America Unplugged is on Rockfin as well as the New Prisoners and uh, Chuck Ocelli. So you can support Chris by supporting those gentlemen as well. And uh, yeah, brother, this has been fun, man. I I really enjoy conversations like this. Uh, I myself get pulled down these deep rabbit holes. Uh, yeah. as you have been and sometimes you need uh you know someone who's like a, a, a used to those circumstances yeah. to to fully sift through the in information so i look forward to our next opportunity to do so and for everybody listening please immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now
stick around after the typical outro to hear more from Kurt Cobain, a rare interview that took place in 1993, almost less than a year before he passed away. And uh, when you listen, ask yourself, does this sound like a man who took his own life? Does this sound like a person who's that close to taking their own life? I don't think so, but you be the judge. All right, and that is today's episode with Chris Graves. Shout out to him. Go be sure to check out his work, Get Mad with Chris Graves. You can find him on the Chuck Ocelli Network, and you can also find him on Rockfin. The link is in the description, so go support Chris. He has a lot of really interesting information tucked away in his mind, and it's a pleasure to have him on the show. I look forward to having him back on to go into some other topics that he clearly has a lot to say about so look forward to that Uh, as for me i just did a another new haven tour shout out to matt who came down and had the tour with us all the way from norwich shout out to you brother thanks for doing that and uh yeah we're gonna you know be more prepared next time i only mentioned the tour just here on the show so uh sort of a test to see how many people would show up and one is better than nobody so thank you for the person who did show up and uh yeah we're gonna be more prepared and promote it more uh next time around uh, probably when the weather is warmer and that gives me plenty of time to add to the tour because i've only just begun to look into this stuff tara of course is helping in the research and we have a lot to learn so uh, more to come soon on that front if you're interested in keeping up with my research i have a Substack now the Substack will be a repository of things that i'm thinking about and writing about i hope to uh write something at least weekly and whatever is most recent will be behind the paywall so uh, if you'd like to support the show and see the most recent article you have to be behind the paywall and subscribe you can also subscribe for free to see uh, certain articles for free so but i do think some of them are going to remain classified so to speak for subscribers only just due to the sensitivity of some of the research you know based on what i'm getting into i'd like to keep uh, as much protection as i can between me and the information so the Substack is a good way to do that and uh yeah that's about it for today's episode thank you to our sponsor the hit kit uh have a happy holidays with a hit kit folks if you have any smokers in the family people who like a good blunt or a good joint Uh, get them get them a hit kit it's a great way to keep anything you'd like to smoke nice and safe and sound right there with your lighter Uh, shout out to matt who came on the tour he said he picked up a hit kit and he gave it to his brother so thank you for supporting the show make sure you use the promo code mftic when you do if that doesn't work try the promo code crazy still can't remember i don't know what that says about me but i do know that if you want to get an aqua cure which i do recommend you listen to 
my interview with George Wiseman and heavily consider getting yourself an aqua curver, please do use the promo code MFTIC when you do that. Also, if you'd like to support the show, you can go to Patreon, you can go to Rockfin, you can support us with a one-time donation on Cash App, PayPal, Venmo, all of that is linked in the description, and I really can't do the show as much as I do without your help, so please support the show, sign up on Patreon, and get all of the awesome bonus content that is there waiting for you you can also sign up for a synchro wisdom dialogue and have a conversation with me about whatever you'd like whether you want advice or you want to share some advice with me or even tell me a story whatever it is uh, please sign up there and uh, yeah that's about it for today's episode thanks for tuning in and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now store like that and just buying the whole store you know it's it's not as you know it's not as special because you've achieved so much success so quickly so surprisingly you've had a baby you're married what excites you now <laughs> my baby and my marriage I don't know I still like playing too I, I mean Chris and Dave and I haven't changed at all I mean believe it or not we we get along just as well as we ever did you know we're just as the same passive aggressive people as we used to be you know we never fight and when we're pissed off at each other we just hold it under our breath and have respect for one another in that way you know it's just it's easier to it's easier to work that way you know because we have a mission <laughs> I guess how do you uh, how do you personally cope with having relationships private relationships that are always being scrutinized publicly it must be really difficult well it is but I mean I you know I still have a lot of the same friends that I used to have so they don't seem to mind and, and that isn't ever really exposed too much you know no one no one writes about how me and my friend Dylan walked down the street and you know, did whatever but um, yeah, but they rip apart you and Courtney they love they love to do that yeah I don't know why, but, um, you know, we're just, um, I don't know. I guess, like, my ego could be talking right now, and I could say, well, we're interesting people, you know, but I think we're just easy scapegoats. It's just, you know, it started with something, and then, you know, people just pick up on it and carry it along, and we turn into cartoon characters, and <laughs> there's nothing I can do about it, really, you know. I can threaten to sue and, you know, try to, try to, um, you know, bring up, bring up libel laws and stuff like that to people that write shit like that about us. But you know, if you've ever looked into that, it's pretty much a lost cause. You have to have a lot of money to do that. And, you know, I could spend the money that I earned last year all on fighting the Vanity Fair piece. You know, and they'd end up winning because they have more money. You know, so. There's a there's a, a magazine in Canada that um, incorporates itself for each issue, and then it goes bankrupt on each issue so that it could write whatever it wants and no one could ever sue them. Wow, that's a pretty smart thing to do. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> that kind of reminds me of um, how um, a lot of stations in the States got a hold of our, um, our new album, but it was like someone had anonymously sent them like fifth generation cassette copies of our new album and 
in order for them to play it, they started on the weekend at 5 o'clock, like on Friday nights. That way they could play it throughout the rest of the weekend without having a council, you know, sue them. And, um, I don't know, that's kind of, that's kind of smart, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's free publicity for you anyway. Ultimately, the album's well, going to come out. That's true, but the thing is, is that there's been so much controversy about how bad the record sounds, you know, and, and how um, <clears throat> lo-fi it is. And to hear it like that compared to all the other songs that were on the radio that night, it really disgusted me and it pissed me off because it sounded terrible. It sounded really, really bad. And then everyone that heard it that weekend is going to say, yeah, you're right. Okay, the, the, the stories are true. The Nirvana album really sucks and I'm not going to buy it, you know. So it just kind of bothered me, but we took care of it. What'd you do? Well, I thought maybe we should hire a lawyer to stop them to do it, then instead I just decided to hire a hitman. Pardon me? Nothing. nothing. <laughs> Erase that. No, we just we just called them up on Monday and told them to stop. And they went, oh, okay. Well, our lawyer did that. Mm. Yeah. Isn't that a weird world for you to suddenly have lawyers and like people who do stuff like that for you? Yeah. <laughs> it's totally unnecessary, too. If, it, if we weren't in this position, we wouldn't need lawyers, you know? It's just, it's totally unnecessary and we have to spend a lot of money just to protect ourselves all the time and it's just stupid. When did that first hit you? When did you realize that you're going to need some people on your team to protect you from the vultures? Too late. <laughs> you know, much after the fact, after we'd already been damaged to a point where it you know, almost didn't do any good, you know. But, um, I don't know, it was just a weird realization one day. Wow, I have to, you know, and I can see how like rock and roll stars will all of a sudden, well, will almost compromise their music to um, to make sure that they sell the same amount of records next year because they've spent all their money on lawyers and protecting themselves last year, you know. But I mean, we obviously haven't done that. I mean, I don't know, maybe you might not have noticed, but the record isn't as commercial as the last one, so. I just, we could never bring ourselves to do that, you know. I'd rather just laugh about it and. I, I was talking to um, Amy Mann, a girl from Till Tuesday. She was at, at, at her office just a couple days ago. She's on tour with Ray Davies or the Kinks, and Ray mm -hmm. Davies was in the office also. He came in before her, and I had mentioned to her that he was very nice but really eccentric when I was talking to him, kind of nutty. And she said, well, you know, there's a lot of people who have been around the record business for those many years, and most of them are kind of nutty. It just, you know, it just, it makes people nutty. Yeah. Can, 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 I mean, you have to, you have, you're facing that. That's your future. Yeah, that's my future. Um, hopefully, we'll put out Metal Machine music next year, you know. I don't know. Um, either I've accepted it or I've gone beyond insane to where I can deal with it. Uh, emotionally, I just, I really don't care. I, I don't. I know that I'm too stubborn to allow myself to ever compromise our music, or, you know, get so wrapped up in it and involved to where it's going to, you know, make turn us into big rock stars. I mean, I just don't feel like that. Everyone else accuses us of it, but, you know, we're everyone not as popular as everyone thinks, or we're not as rich as everyone thinks. You know, it's just, it's just. We've always had a good sense of humor. I don't think that's very, been translated very well, you know, but we'd rather laugh about it. Ha, ha, ha. You know what really surprised me, though, is your, 
you're you're pretty bright, and your lyrics are, and and just your whole stage persona is pretty angry, angst-ridden, frustrated. I mean, you see the world for what it is. Did you ever have second thoughts about bringing a child into the world? The way oh it is? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. I I really can't describe what what changed our attitude so fast. I think you know I was. I really was a lot more negative and, and angry and everything else a few years ago, but that was that had a lot to do with um, not having not having a mate, you know, not having a, a steady girlfriend and stuff like that. So, I, you know, that was one of the main things that was that was bothering me that I wouldn't admit at the time, you know. So now that I've found that, the world seems a lot better for some reason, you know. It just it really does change your attitude about things. You know, I mean, four years ago, I would have said yeah. the classic thing, like, um, you know, how dare someone bring a child into this life, you know, it's, it's completely a terrible way to go, and, you know, the world's going to explode any day and stuff like that, but once you fall in love, it's, it's a bit different. <laughs> I don't want to know about it. Stop. <laughs> George and I are not in the best love situations right now, so oh. we'll stop talking about that. We'll change the subject. Okay. So I want to talk to you about. Um, I'm not it, boasting about it. It's just no, it's something nice. that's really, it's really nice weird. To talk about it. That you know okay. that you have something like that to talk about. <laughs> it's nice. Uh, you know. Can you hold this for a while? <laughs> Do you mind? I'm, really, what, I'm feeling a little weak. Uh, you know that this whole grunge thing, that this in quotations grunge, all I want to know is where did the term come from? I have no idea. I think some of the rumors are that um, Jonathan Poneman said it one time sarcastically and it just caught on. Who's that? He's um, one of the head honchos at Sub Pop Records. But, um, no one set out to market it, market this music as that, you know, just, you know, that's what happens when the main media, the media catches on. They have to call it something. I like it as much as New Wave. I would have been proud to be a New Waver, you know, 15 years ago. Oh yeah, well, we were about the same age. I was into New Wave, absolutely. Do you think you Me have too. some of the same? The, is there anything the same between your music and New Wave? I think so. Like what? Well, like you know, New Wave was just a progression from punk rock and a mutation of punk rock, you know, and it was more commercial and more palatable, you know. It, it had you know, punk rock roots, and it was easier to swallow for, for the media and middle America and the middle of the world, and, and it's just, you know, that's what I kind of think about our music. Are you worried about a Nirvana backlash? Hasn't that already been over with? Hasn't that already happened? I don't know. <laughs> sure. I, no. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is everyone talking about? But we're getting more new wave as the days go by. I think we're going to reinvent new wave and, and bring back breakdancing. I'd really like to bring back new wave and, and breakdancing. You know, meld it to something. I don't know. That's what our new music is sounding like. We're using a lot more effects boxes and we're... we're we haven't resorted to skinny ties, but we're going to... I think we're, our music's... You know, this, this album's like the closing of the chapter of, of the formula we've been using, you know, it's like grunge is it's really kind of boring for us, you know, it's something we can't deny and we're not going to stop playing the old songs live, whoops, and, um, but, you know, 
we're, our tastes are just changing so rapidly that we're really experimenting with a lot of stuff and it might get too indulgent and be really embarrassing for the next album but we can't put out another album and this is just like the last chapter of, of three chord grunge music for us and um, it was an easy thing to do and a safe thing to do because we knew it's still popular you know but we had to get it out of our systems how come you are so nice and you're so you seem so comfortable with yourself something must have really happened in the last couple of years is it is it just falling in love no what happened i've always been a nice guy maybe you were afraid to show up before how's that <laughs> Well, um, what, I don't know, you, you've never met me before, I never so. I've met you before, but I know that other people who have had the opportunity to interview, and you went, they said, oh, he hates doing interviews, he's not going to want to talk about anything. Well. I said, well, you know, whatever, who knows. <laughs> and you're just like exactly the opposite of, of. It just depends on what mood I'm in, really. Yeah, I'm kind of a moody person, and a lot of times when someone has had the chance to talk to me have probably been on tour or have probably gone through an exhaustive time where I've talked about myself for hours and hours and this week I haven't had to talk about myself very much so Lucky probably me. more cooperative. <laughs> um, I think one of the interesting things about Nirvana that, that you don't really talk about that much is that you're very concerned about sexism. I like that. That's, that's, that's good. So how do you... Uh, how do you make people aware of that problem? By writing songs as blunt as rape me. <laughs> Having to resort to doing something like that is almost embarrassing because um, people didn't understand when we wrote a song like about a girl or Polly and having to explain that and having misunderstandings about it, it's just, I decided to write rape me in a way that was just so blunt and obvious that it's like no one could deny it, you know? No one could read into it any other way, you know? Although some people have, actually, because some of the lyrics in it, some of the, some people have thought that maybe um, it has something to do with my disgust with the media and the way they've treated us and stuff like that, but it's not true. It's, that's not what the song's about at all. It's just my way of, in a sarcastic way almost, of like just saying how obvious do we have to be, you know? And, I guess we don't talk about those kind of things that you know that are really important to us because um, because um, I don't want to be thought of as like nothing more than a PC band, you know. I mean, we're entertainers, <laughs> you know. That's what music is, and so it's it's really hard to you know step over the lines, you know. It's that you have so much power because that camera's on you. <laughs> you can use it. <laughs> Yeah, well, we try to use our power. I mean, we have really have been effective in certain ways, like being associated with this um, organization called FAIR, and I can't remember it right now because I have a mental block of exactly what it stands for, but it's something like, um, uh, shit, I can't remember. <laughs> but it, but they're, they're an organization who um, who looks at the injustices that are, that are, they look at the details that Around that surrounds certain issues and certain um, stories that have been that have been um, reported in, in in magazines and newspapers like USA Today, who who tend to you know 
look over a lot of the facts, and, and um, they're pretty much a leftist organization that um, tries to protect people in certain areas, you know, and they and they supposedly try as hard as they can to, um, you know, to deliver the truth. And so, you know, we've done benefits like that for like no on nine benefits for, to try to stop, um, to try to stop um, Portland's um, anti-gay laws that they were trying to pass. And, and we did a Bosnian benefit and stuff like that. And, you know, it doesn't seem like much, but, you know, we raised, like $50,000 for the Bosnian rape victims, you know, and that's a lot more than we could have done griping about it and talking about it in interviews and like maybe putting out a fanzine, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing stuff like that, but, you know, we're using our, we're using the tools that we've, we have, you know, and we're being effective as much as we can, but we still don't want to be too political at the same time, you know, because it's just kind of embarrassing to do that, or, you know, you get a lot of ridicule for it. You're doing what you believe in, and that's the most important thing. You know, it's hard not to, you know. I mean, if you're put in this position, what are you going to do? You become a Republican or something? You know? <laughs> Just to protect what you've earned, big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing. No, a, sorry, we're, sorry. Okay, I'm ask a couple more questions <clears throat> and then let you free. Okay. Yeah. I am rolling. Okay. Is it all right so, to smoke on Canadian television? <laughs> it's too late now. You're already out of your shirt. Do what you want. <laughs> Um, so we're doing three. a special on um, the replacements, and I was just wondering yeah. if they had a, at all any influence on you as a songwriter on the music you make. I kind of wish they did, because there's so many comparisons to us. You know, um, I have to be honest. I really didn't like the replacements when I was into uh, punk rock music. I listened to them, and um, just I mean, I liked the sound of it. And I don't know if that, I think my appreciation for R.E.M. and the Beatles and stuff like that had more to do with it, because I really wasn't aware of Soul Asylum and, and The Replacements and those bands. I mean, I knew about them, and I actually saw them live and stuff, and I just didn't get it. I did, didn't like it that much. Um, and um, can we have a comment, please, on, um, I'll wait till you light this one, because this is such an, what is your, your comment on Muzak being, uh, being or, or, being here at the, the capital of music, being here in Seattle? Well, it's an obvious thing to happen, you know, <laughs> something that you'd expect. Oh, oh, I thought you were talking about the music from, that they, this music record that they put out of Grunge Light. Oh, the Grunge Light, oh, what do you think of that? It's that great, girl? sure. It's, it's an obvious thing to happen, you know. It's the last, last uh, chapter on the book of Grunge. But um, the music capital, that's where, so this is the place where most music comes from? I didn't even know that. I thought there was just, you know, one station here. Seattle is the capital of music. Thanks for letting me know about that. You thought it was grunge. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we were there, but they don't, they're not doing your songs. Oh, bummer. They said it was too, what is it, too aggressive? It would make people too excited. Oh, well, <laughs> we have some pretty songs too. God, that's that's really a bummer. That upsets me. But um, I don't know. Music, that's pretty neat. It's but they don't like. They didn't like the Grunge Light album because the woman sent a copy to them, and they really? they didn't like it because it was it was too electronic, and they're into using real musicians. Oh yeah, I like that idea better too. That's yeah. I liked it when Devo did their music version of their songs. That was really neat. Did you ever hear that? That was nice. 
And they, I think they use real musicians for that. Did you get to hang out with them, Devo? Mm-mm. I know that you're a bit of a fan of theirs. No. Never met them. Did we get to meet anyone who would be, would, would be like your hero? Anyone that you're real pleased that you got to meet? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's kind of a positive side of, of being a rock and roll star. But um, no, actually, I met Iggy Pop before we were rock and roll stars. And Iggy Pop is pretty much the only person that I've met that I really, really admire and like. And, um, and when you met him, were you pleased? Yeah. It was big excitement. Yeah, it was great. Um, I didn't ask him for an autograph. <laughs> I tried not to bother him <laughs> the way that I thought that I might be bothered. But um, I don't know. And then the other person is William Burroughs. I met him and uh, and I actually got to put out a record with him. So. Hey, tell me about the record that you're doing with William Burroughs. Well, it's already out. It was it's just a 10 inch. It's just one story of his called The Priest They Called Him. And I just it was a long distance recording. He had recorded his version, and then I, I just played a bunch of guitar noises in the background, and they mixed it somewhere else, and it came out. And now we're talking about putting out a, a whole album. Wow. Yeah. Of him reading his work and you playing guitar underneath? Yeah. I think I'll play a bunch of instruments this time, instead of just, you know, fucking off like I did before. Uh, you know, it was just a last-minute thing where I just made a bunch of noise, but this time I'd like to kind of work on it. Maybe I'll do a Muzak version. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure William Bros would love that, a little bit of Muzak. <laughs> Let me just make sure I have all my questions asked, and um, this is one that I... Oh, Tori Amos, did you like the cover of this <laughs> Well, it served a purpose because we used that uh, um, as an opening before we came out, we'd play that song oh, really? and then we'd come out and dance to it, <laughs> do a little bit of interpretive That's dancing funny. to it. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah. The last thing I want to ask you about is, um, I'm not sure who in your band said it, it could have been you, it could have been someone else, but someone being a little perturbed by them, your mainstream audience and, and wanting to just make music for your real fans. Well, you know, a couple of years ago when we were making these bold negative statements about things like that, you know, we were really confused and we are scared, we are afraid that we would lose a lot of our audience that meant a lot to us because they're people that, you know, we supposedly, hopefully feel that we have a connection with, you know, you know, the college students and people in the underground, and I don't, I don't think we've lost them. I think they're still fans, so I'm not worried about it anymore. And I was at the time. MFTIC Yeah Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijacking perception tricking the population with holographic projections we see through it the system is unraveling i'm astral traveling through the library of the vatican on a sacred journey i embark with the squad forever spitting truth like mark on the pod gotta know the facts never hold back because i ain't getting caught up in the soul trap i dissect the fabric of reality looking for the answers searching through the galaxy you might be feeling stressed out 
depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. You don't even know how powerful you are. We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade. I awoke in a deep underground military base. Zero recollection of how I got to this place. Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders must have been extracted when they crashed into us. Animal hybrids contained in the cages. A lion with the eagle head. Monkeys with reptilian faces. Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate. I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit. All of a sudden the wall flickers away. Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft. My getaway. I run to the nearest one. See a guard knock him out. Rob him for his plasma gun. Hop in the ship. Take the controls. They highly intuitive. I figure it out easily. Lift off. Accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light. Fly into the sky. Get flanked. By six F-35 facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade